Hi, my name is Nicholas Tretian. I'm the writer, director, and editor of the supernatural crime drama Thunderbird, and you are listening to Neil Before Pod. Neil Before Blog presents Neil Before Pod. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, good morning, good afternoon, good evening, and good night, and welcome to Neil Before Pod, a podcast that returns from the very duet to bring you news of the meaning of both life and death. For this discussion on the recent Disney series Moon Knight, I am most definitely not your regularly scheduled host personality, but rather a mild-mannered splinter personality, Aaron, who stands in disbelief the chaos caused by his world-hopping, god-rescuing, usually hosting other self. Hello, Craig. I have to say I'm very impressed with my brain's ability to conjure up a believable accent. Oh, well, yeah, it's good. Mine is the one, I suppose, that's supposed to be a bit weird and challenging, so really you should be analysing mine. What do you reckon to my background of uh, Jewish, American, English, London? Seems fine, based on my limited experience of what such a thing is supposed to sound like. Apparently he did actually do some proper research into that. He didn't just go and make it up. He didn't just say, oh, this will do, I'll copy Dick Van Dyke, it'll be fine. He actually put loads of effort into that accent to copy various things. Yeah, well, he's an actor, so that's part of their process, right? They're not just supposed to walk in and think, I'm just going to talk like this. They should put some effort into it. It was when I interviewed David Hayden Jones, the guy that played Mr. Ketch on Supernatural. Something went wrong during the recording inside baseball here, but back in the days where I was recording using two Skype connections, one of them broke, but the other was fine, so it was still recording on that end. And... While he was waiting for me to come back, he was doing some vocal exercises. He was trying to perfect, I think it was a Scouse accent. So I had that recording for a while of just him having a go at that. It was really funny. Yeah, that um, is something I will not try and mimic here. (laughs) The reason I thought about it is just because when you look at it online, all people do is just completely take the mic and say, oh, what about the accent? I guess that's just the fun, the joke of it, though. But it made it sound like people were just giving it the full Dick Van Dyke treatment to him, which I thought, oh, seems a bit harsh. But anyway. I'm sure Dick Van Dyke put effort into that as well. I'm guessing that was deliberate. I need to go back now and watch Mary Poppins again now and think, do I actually think it was bad or not? Because maybe I don't. I don't remember it being bad. But then I was a kid when I watched that. (laughs) But yeah, moving on to hopefully better and more planned things. Let's bring in our proper Moon Knight chat. And you can tell me, first of all, where this series lies for you in the list of favourites and worsts. Was it good, bad, hated? I don't know where it would sit on the pantheon hawkeye is still my favorite i think of the lot although ms marvel looks like it's shaping up to take that crown i'm basing that on basically nothing because i haven't seen it yet but it just seems like it might be irreverent and fun it's probably around where loki sits wherever that sits there's a similar sort of vibe to it which i suppose we'll definitely talk about but around there somewhere in the middle i would say for me I guess I would say the same about Hawkeye because I thought Hawkeye was just the best created, well-structured jokes in the right place and not too much of the invasion of the MCU to disturb the main plots that have upset quite a few of the other ones. So I I think I am going to put it second 
but I couldn't say it was any better than Hawkeye. I think it's my favourite character, though. We've got our pictures of the team in their various MCU alternates for our banners that we've done. I'm the Hulk, I'm Bruce Banner. And I first thought, well, do you know, I'm not sure I can live up to that. I don't think I could be the sort of physicist of the calibre that is Bruce. But do you know how I really could be? I could totally be a mild mannish gift shop owner. <laughs> That's something I could really be. Not owner, employee. Employee. Well, that makes it even easier, yeah. So I felt like, yeah, I could really go for this. I really enjoyed the character a lot. But yeah, I'd have to say that Hawkeye is probably still better crafted overall. Maybe not for individual elements, but overall for a whole series. I think one thing we'll talk about is this has the problem that Hawkeye didn't really have, actually, as in the, we'll make this interesting until the last episode where we just make it the third act of an MCU thing, for better or for worse. So we'll throw out everything we're doing, and or not everything, but we'll throw out a lot of what we're doing. We'll just give you an action piece, and most of the shows have been guilty of that to some degree, or in the case of Loki, just losing the plot in its final episode, just completely diverting in another direction. But WandaVision, all the interesting stuff gives way to Wanda and Agatha throwing different coloured magical bolts at each other. Falcon and Winter Soldier was a bit of a thoughtful ending, but it was that action piece again at the end, but it made sense and it was more thoughtful. Loki, I've already mentioned. Hawkeye, it did, again, have a big action piece at the end, but it all felt like it was building to that, so it was fine. Yes, I think Hawkeye, he certainly was built, the action was built around the emotional payoff, though, so I don't think I minded that at all because of the, as you say, the setup. But clearly some of the other ones, it was just, yeah, can we remember that we're an MCU show, please, and bring all that back in. Yeah. We've definitely got a slot in here to talk about the finale, though, so I'll pick you up on that when we do it. Sure. Before we hit spoilers, though, I remember hearing a lot of, or reading, rather, a lot of chat from yourself when it started, Moon Knight started, around critics saying that it's broken new ground for marvel and i thought that would be something before we hit the spoilers you could comment on because you really went against that if i remember rightly it's not that i went against that i just had issues with the hyperbole of the fact that everybody was saying that full disclosure i didn't get advanced access to this so in case anybody thinks i'm bitter about the fact that i didn't get advanced <laughs> access and other people did that's not it at all but seeing all the hyperbolic reactions of this is like nothing the mcu has ever given us before etc and i don't think that's the case i do think that it does some things that the mcu hasn't really done before but equally it's still a recognizable mcu thing it still folds into the trappings that the mcu has because there is a house style you can push it so much in a different direction but you always have to come back it's an interview with a director i did for black lightning this analogy is a great one you get to choose the toppings but you're still making a pizza right that's what i equate with moon knight and it's funny we haven't talked about Doctor Strange on this podcast yet, but Doctor Strange is getting similar accolades about how it's this is a proper Sam Raimi movie. He's putting his proper stamp on it. And I do think that's true to an extent, but he's still making the pizza. He's still yeah. making an MCU movie. He's putting a bit more of a stamp on it. So I feel like this show tries a few different things. It gives us a bit of horror, gives us a bit of adventuring, etc. But the general tone, the way the comedy's delivered and stuff like that is very much an MCU thing. And when I watched the first episode of this, I wasn't sitting there thinking, God, this is like nothing I've ever seen from these guys before. I felt at home. And I don't mean that as a criticism. I felt like it was familiar, but also playing around within the parameters of what's already established. And that's fine as a choice for a universe. I think we've talked about before how DC take bigger swings when they're making their stuff. So all of their things feel a bit different to each other. 
Mm. Whereas Marvel, there's always a recognisable style that they return to. And I don't have a problem with that. It's just the, again, the hyperbolic, I want clicks, so I'm going to keep saying this. It's like nothing the MCU's ever done before. I don't Mm. agree with that. Not as bad, it's just that I don't agree with the fact that it's radical and experimental in the way that some people suggested it was. No, at best it potentially could be considered experimental from the relative standpoint of what the MCU has done, which isn't very far from home base at all, if I'm allowed an Americanism. But seeing as you mentioned Doctor Strange, that's the other thing then that this could have been, I think, which is opening the door to people who are watching the TV shows, seeing the other darker or more magical characters coming in a lot more frequently. So you think that maybe they've not really pushed the boat out so far, but do you reckon they've opened the door to anything different, being gods or being magic? Or do you think that actually, given the films now, in fact, they've not even managed to do anything new there? I think the MCU are slowly drip-feeding in different elements and they're doing it in such a way that it won't be overwhelming when they do it which Mm. i find interesting so the avengers gives you the concept of a team up and then they take the team up a bit further and then you get the team splitting into two and fighting each other and then you get the eternals which is old cosmic stuff guardians of the galaxy more cosmic bigger universe stuff etc it's very very slowly just pasting things on to the side of the mcu and just making anything possible but it's not just throwing it all in so you immediately accept it and i think they're being very careful with that and it's an accident because of covid really that this and doctor strange are out roughly the same time because doctor strange as we all know was planned to be out way way earlier before they were even thinking about doing a moon Knight show or they were getting to the stage of announcing it so it's a happy accident that the two similarish ones are happening around about the same time and yeah it's just another side of it because when we had thor they're gods but they're not really gods they're aliens It's just we think they're gods, and now it's, no, there's gods. (laughs) These are magical beings that we now consider deities. So it's a different kind of god, I suppose, and they're throwing in the different pantheons. They all exist, it seems. Certainly the Egyptian pantheon does, and the Norse pantheon does, and now the Greek pantheon as well, when we see the next Thor movie. So it's just, yeah, there's a way to do all of this, but we're not going to do it all at once because that's overwhelming. We're going to give you it in stages. And I think this is a, an element of that. Although I do think they've got an eye on not everyone's watching these TV shows. So they have to do it in the films as well. So there's where you get Doctor Strange doing it at the same time. Even though they didn't really do gods in the movie. Spoilers, not spoilers. <laughs> Definitely going to bring a couple of those points up after spoilers. The idea of introducing gods and what that's going to connect to back into the upcoming films. Because I think there's definitely something that this had to come before but the idea that Doctor Strange probably should have been brought in with one division makes a lot of sense when you're watching Doctor Strange although to be perfectly honest when I was watching Doctor Strange all I was doing was putting my head in my hands and going oh my god why but (laughs) we might come back to that on a different podcast who knows so I'm going to leave Doctor Strange chat alone and come to a point for myself. So I wanted to pick that up for you about whether you thought it was breaking the barriers of the MCU and pick up something that I said after that ages ago. I can't remember what podcast it was, but it was you that reminded me of this. Sometime ages ago, we spoke about Moon Knight and you said, what do you reckon to Moon Knight? And I said, oh, I'm really worried about it because I think this is the point where it could go completely nuts. And the power level could become ridiculous and inexplicable. 
and there'd be no meaning to it because it completely removes itself from all personal plot lines if it's all God-level, universe-ending stuff. And so what I will say is, I really enjoyed the Moon Knight character, I've already said that, but I actually really enjoyed the fact that they kept it grounded. I'm talking about the finale, but for the most part, it was grounded in real human problems. You know, the reason Moon Knight gets selected, the reason the human being gets selected to become the Moon Knight is quite personal. And they mentioned the themes of personal abuse in there that he's not actually being treated very well so i actually say coming out of moon Knight, i would go back to my past self and say don't worry about it they ground this actually pretty well it's the films that have gone utterly nuts and maybe even for me doctor strange 2 has sort of let go of its moorings on firm earth possibly in a way that Guardians managed to just about keep us on board, even though that was a bit nuts. They stayed quite, I thought, personal with that. Either way, bring it back to Moon Knight. I'm really pleased that they didn't go utterly nuts with it and have us just wandering through space. And then if it's a full moon, he can actually turn back time himself. Where the powers were over the top, you had to actually be a god to use them. I thought, yeah, fair enough. Why not? Who am I to challenge what a god can and cannot do? But I'm pretty glad that they didn't have a moon knight that could have taken Captain Marvel. I think that's what I feared. So I might chuck that to yourself and say, I know we'll come to the details of the power levels, but did you have any fears going into Moon Knight that were either recognized or turned out to be not a thing? Not really, but I've gotten to the point or maybe I've been at this point for a long time, where when it comes to comic book stuff, I'll generally roll with the punches. So whatever they do, I recognise that, okay, this has worked somewhere in the comic book medium, and different writers have played around with different things and made it work or not work in different ways. So I don't really have that same kind of aversion that you do to these possibilities, because... I guess growing up reading these superhero comics, I'm just more conditioned to, yeah, whatever, it's it's all part of the same thing. We'll see how it pans out. And Moon Knight is also a character I know very little about before and after this show because I haven't really had the time to really dig into the character in a comic book sense. And he's only ever really appeared in comics that I was reading, such as maybe an Avengers comic or Spider-Man comics or whatever I was reading. He would turn up there and do stuff. So you get a sense of who he is through that but nothing really because it's not his book it's someone else's book or it's a team-up adventure that he's just there and you have to just again accept that he can do what he can do so you don't Mm. really worry about it because if you do then you can't read the story you can't enjoy it so going into this i was fine and this is the first one where i haven't known anything really about the, the character that they're adapting so i was happy just to enjoy the ride in that sense and let the show tell me about the character. I get bits and pieces because I watch, I guess, post-mortems on YouTube from a couple of channels that I follow and they talk about, in the comics, this happened. I'm like, all right, okay, fair enough. But as I'm watching the episode, I'm not thinking about, okay, that's a different riff on this thing or they've changed that or whatever. I'm just watching it and then getting what they're giving me, which is an interesting experience because, like I say, before this point, I have been really coming from this place of knowledge or some kind of knowledge. And I had that when watching Eternals and Shang-Chi as well in the cinema. I I know very little about these people. So show me, teach me, give me everything you can. And it's an interesting experience, I think. It's certainly good to see a few that you don't bring your expectations and needs in with you. Because I've destroyed stories for myself with that. I want this to be X. Oh, and it's not. Well, I'm going to be disappointed no matter what you give me then, unless it's 
going to blow you away. So I know I've done that myself a couple of times to shows or films. So it is nice to have it. I will say, though, that see, when I'm watching the Marvel films, I feel like I'm watching them usually through different eyes that I would watch a pure fantasy or pure any speculative fiction piece. And it surprised me then, I think, when I was sitting in front of Doctor Strange 2 and I felt myself watching through the eyes of the me talking about your multiple personalities here <laughs> but different perspectives i'm seeing dr strange too through my fantasy perspective and that was weird because i'm so used to watching the superhero stuff through a new perspective that marvel has created for me or one that riffed back on the old superman batman stuff that i used to see as a kid so yeah maybe it is grounded in that but if i watch some of the really fantastical adventures from my youth i think that's a totally different perspective and for me i like to see that distinct i really do like to see them on opposite side of that wall that i and myself have created because i find that doctor strange 2 crossed over into this i'm going to try and do something magical and fairy tale and for me utterly failed whereas moon knight seemed to come in and say, I'm going to be a superhero thing. And I thought, yes, you are on that line. And as I'm watching it, I can watch it through those eyes. It's another example of bringing your darkness with you. So I totally admit that that's something that might be just stuck in my head. It is interesting, nonetheless, to see it. And as you say, if you're coming in without expectation, then maybe it's easier to watch it. So I will sum up my non-spoiler stuff by saying I really enjoyed this. I'm not sure it was too chilly as well put together as Hawkeye, but definitely the Moon Knight character is my favourite. I won't summarise for you, though. You can tell me if you want to summarise or if you're ready to go on to spoilers. Yeah, I enjoyed this. I liked the characters and I liked the things they were doing. I do think it was probably a bit rushed in the way that it was telling its story. I do think it could have benefited from having maybe a couple more episodes. And it's very rare that we'll say that, actually. I wish there was more of this. Usually it could have cut a couple of episodes from this. But... In this case, I do think there was more time required to let some of the concepts breathe because it almost feels like they're ticking off a checklist of here's all the stuff that people know about Moon Knight and let's do it all in one season, which is both a good thing and a bad thing, I suppose. It's a good thing in the sense that you get to see that thing about Moon Knight that you like. The bad thing is we've now run out of story almost (laughs) because we can't do this later because we've done it now. It's the same problem that Thor Ragnarok has with, well, now they can't do Planet Hulk because they did it here. Yeah. Well, we'll analyse some of those things in greater detail, hopefully in this podcast. But before we do that, I think we need to warn people of spoilers. So Craig, if you wouldn't mind making the spoiler noise, please. Yeah, summon the spoiler noise. Summon the spoiler noise, some sort of godlike noise, fair enough. You're not supposed to be here. The idiots in control. Thank you, Craig, for that excellently chosen noise. And we'll carry on. In honour of the show, I've linked our talking points to the phases of the moon, and we're going to begin with Under a New Moon. A time to reflect, apparently. Looking this up the other day, so... (laughs) Picking up my spiritual knowledge here. You put more thought into these structures than I do. Usually I'm just, <laughs> characters, plot, let's hear some bullet points, let's go. <laughs> oh, see, I like a bit of meaning. I always talk about where's the meaning, so I have to. Otherwise I wouldn't be true to myself. But here, time to reflect on representation. I didn't want to miss this one, and it's nice that the time to reflect comes first, actually, because it is obviously relevant to today, the idea of 
representation being something we should be doing more of. And Moon Knight is very much a project that aims to do it because you've got Mohammed Diab coming in saying very much, we need to do Egypt better. And I'm going to make sure I do that. I'm saying this because I researched it, not because I know his films, but he's a known director for tackling the issues of modern day Egypt. Or if it was anybody that's going to come in and say, we're going to do this right, by the way, it was going to be him. So we'll start with that. And I'm going to ask you, do you think then that they did do diversification properly? Or do you reckon it's lip service and there's a failure here? I think the diversification was really natural because they didn't highlight it. Mm. It's just these people are here and they're going through a story. They're going through character arcs, etc. It's not winking at the camera and saying, look at how diverse we are. We've all seen moments like that in various things. Endgame, for example, has that controversial moment where all the women line up and say, we'll help you get through this blockade of expendable alien creatures. And people looked at that and it went down the wrong way because you've really not done well by your female characters up to this point and now you're congratulating yourself for it? No, you don't get away with that. Sorry. You failed up until this point. Also, Black Widow's not here, so thanks for failing that too. I mean, that's one example. But it, it comes up a lot in modern fiction where they'll stop and they'll explain why this person being here is a good thing rather than it just being a good thing. And I think it's great to see because... I personally don't really think about it. When I was doing the reviews, I wasn't commenting on the diversity of the cast because it didn't stand out to me. But that's the point, isn't it? The point is you're focusing on what story's being told and irrespective of what colour the people telling it are, what their nationality is or what have you. And then there'll be the other perspective of the people that are connected to those characters that are representing them will appreciate it because they're seeing themselves on screen. But for everyone else, we're just along for the ride. Like I said earlier, we're just telling a story. And I'm always a proponent of the fact that it doesn't necessarily matter for the story in all cases. Obviously, there's some stories you can only tell with certain races, like 12 Years a Slave and so on. Those kinds of things have to be told in a certain way. But it's difficult to express. But it's a big deal, but they didn't make a big deal of it, I suppose, is what I'm trying to get at. I think you expressed it there. It's natural. That was the point I was going to bring up myself. And I think they've done this with, I say I think, I don't know. I don't need to say that. They actually told me this when I was doing my research. Going into it, there was a very clear thought to not over-dramatize the dissociative identity disorder. And I think they've taken exactly the same approach, as you say, naturally maybe, without even thinking about it when it comes to the representation. So you've covered it perfectly. They put a diverse cast on stage and didn't need to put a whole bunch of banners and flags in, and it's just done. There's only one moment where they actively do it. But you get a payoff. There's that one moment in one of the episodes, I think it must be the last episode, where a passerby who's just been saved turns to Layla and says, are you an Egyptian superhero? (laughs) And Layla says, yes. And I was almost thinking, oh, you went through all this way without doing it. But then I saw what they got, the actress playing the random passerby. She was just so happy. That's all it was. There was no response. There was no, can I have your autograph? Again, they didn't play it up. It was just this sheer joy on someone's face. And I joke, fair enough. <laughs> That's a nice understated reaction. Just sheer joy that the American superhero is now not the only one out there. So understated and natural, I would say, does describe it perfectly. Yeah, and that's a common thing that tends to come up in 
superhero stuff as well, the whole inspiring the young child thing. Mm-hmm. The Amazing Spider-Man 2 did it with the kid that was getting bullied that Spider-Man jumps in and saves and he walks him home and, and all that stuff. And there's a really good moment. And the other one is perhaps in more questionable taste is in the Snyder Cut. We talked about it in our Snyder Cut podcast where Wonder Woman has just painted people's brains on the wall and a little girl says... I was so weird. Can I be like you when I grow up or something like that? And she says, yeah. you can be whatever you want to be. So you don't want to be that. That's pretty extreme. <laughs> She's blown out the front of this building as well. Yeah. It's not inspiring or it shouldn't be inspiring. No. Inspiring your future psychopaths, maybe. Well, it makes sense if you're somebody from Greek legend, because if you go back more than two millennia to the time when Greek warriors were at the forefront of what was going on, that was what was expected of you. Diana is doing what was expected of her more than two millennia ago. It made sense. But yes, I like to think we've moved on a bit in two millennia, but <laughs> maybe not. Who knows? Since you mentioned Wonder Woman, though, I have to ask, because I saw something during the research that I know nothing about. There was apparently a controversy with Wonder Woman 1984, in which Egypt or Egyptians weren't presented very well. And Mohammed Dieb says, that's one of the things I need to fix. So... Having not seen it, I just wanted to ask, what was that? There's a whole sequence in Egypt where there's just some questionable stuff going on. Mm. I won't go into too much detail. It'll be easy enough to find out or watch the film, maybe. I wouldn't necessarily recommend watching the film, but yeah, there's issues around that. And then it's funny that Layla's costume is quite similar to, the, you'll at least seen the trailer, the Golden Eagle outfit that she wears in the trailer. Yeah. There's just similarities there. So there's a significant part of Egypt in Wonder Woman 1984, and it's pretty insensitive. Oh, strange. And it's to do with Gal Gadot herself, with her Israeli descent. Oh, right. Okay, fair enough. That's part of it, anyway. Okay, it's starting to sound a bit dodgy then, so we will move on. Let's take this idea of the similarities of the superheroes and bend it slightly, because one of the things I noticed was the repurposing of uh, comic reference. The Scarlet Scarab, which Layla is, is nothing to do with her. In fact, the whole setup has been completely repurposed. Now, as somebody who has not have any vested interest in this, that's not going to bother me. But as someone who is more connected to the comic book universe, I did wonder, do you reckon that some part of the fan base will say, you can't do that, that's not who the Scarlet Scarab was supposed to be? Or do you reckon that this has been done so well that people will say, that's brilliant use of the Scarlet Scarab? You're always going to get the purists that won't like any change that is made when adapting something. Okay, they can like or dislike it for their own reasons. I didn't personally see anybody being that bothered about it. That might have something to do with the obscurity of the Moon Knight character and associated Mm -hmm. concepts. So people don't know what they're doing right or wrong in inverted commas. I don't know. There will be people that don't like it. Personally, I don't have an issue with it because I feel like if they've adapted something well and the changes they made make sense Mm. then i'm okay with it but then i don't know anything about that side of it so i can't really comment on whether it does make sense as a change or not because i had no idea who the scarlet scarab was before i saw this show i'm watching it thinking makes sense for her to do this i guess maybe it was a bit rushed the way she fell into that role but it makes sense that she would become a superhero oh yes she was right in there as being potential for being an avatar a couple of gods had their eye on her, although one of them, it was all just a trick. But still, she must have been considered a believable avatar right from the start, otherwise it wouldn't have been in there. If we take this Scarlet Scarab then as they've presented it on Moon Knight, and I think we can actually do that in isolation, because anything I could see about the Scarlet Scarab as was, was 
is just totally different. So this is a complete repurposing. So I think we can actually say, did you like it? Was she a distinct superhero? Did May Kalamaui play it off well? What did you reckon to her as a superhero? Yeah, I thought she was great. And like I said, it believably built to it because throughout the show, you saw how capable she was. You saw how smart she was. You saw how driven she was. So it would make sense for her to take on a hero role on her own terms, which is what the show wants you to think she did. We'll probably get to the whole quick decision that she makes to become the Avatar with not a lot of information as to what she's doing. But it made sense and she really helped change up that final battle as well because her power set was different enough to the Moon Knight, Mr. Knight stuff, that there was plenty to recommend there. There was plenty to keep you diverted without it all becoming the same malaise of just punching and knives and whatever. I was thinking that their powers were reasonably similar, but I do admit that with the wingsuit, she had a slightly different fighting style. Do you reckon that they were completely different then. I thought they were similar, but I didn't mind that because they came from the same source. You're an avatar or a god, but for you, did they come across as very different then? Could you see the two different gods within the two avatars? I think it was different enough. The differences more came from the styles of the people wielding the powers rather than the powers themselves, I suppose. Her physicality was different to Oscar Isaac doing his two different types of physicality. I was going to bring that up just to say I was okay with that. I think everybody was different enough. They're all similar as avatars, but they're all different enough. Definitely need to come back to the idea of the difference between Moon Knight and Mr. Knight, because that's one of the best things (laughs) I saw. But we do need to bring in the idea of actors acting opposite themselves here, though. You think it's actually just going to be Moon Knight with his DID, but... We do get a little bit with May herself when she's acting Layla versus Tarawet. Did you like that? Did that fit with you? Yeah, it was good. It was done differently because the Oscar Isaac stuff was mostly in mirrors when he was talking to his other self. So you did have the visual of the two people. And apparently his brother was standing in for him a lot. I saw that, yeah. Across the filming. I'd never actually saw a picture, so I don't know how similar he and his brother look. It's not like with Linda Hamilton in the Terminator franchise. It's a proper twin, I don't think. No. Or an identical twin. But with me doing her talking to herself, it was she would speak and then she would speak in a different voice and the conversation would happen that way. And I thought that worked really well. I believe it was the two people and she was successfully emulating the Temeret actress as well. Yes. Which is my next point, actually. This whole idea, I think they put quite a lot of effort into their for want of a better phrase, pattern recognition. I do want to come on to the idea of symbology and Egyptian mythology being used in this, but one of the things I thought they did well was not rely on that symbology and instead give you things like Easter eggs and patterns that you could follow to tell the story with. And I would say this is one of the best uses of it. I can't say that people don't do that everywhere else in the MCU stuff, because of course they put Easter eggs in all of their stuff. But the patterns, I think I noticed more, the very idea of all of the actors trying to copy a CGI humanoid hippo mannerisms (laughs) and voice and all was just brilliant. Because even the guy that they get to play the dead army soldier who was taken out by Arthur Harrow did a really good job of acting out a giant hippo. (laughs) Layla looked pretty good and sounded pretty good as it was, but you're an extra. All you're going to do is lie on the ground and your one job to really act out is to act like a giant hippo. Well done. You nailed that (laughs) one. So I thought they did that sort of stuff really well throughout. And a lot of it, I guess, does have to be done with 
control of your voice as well as control of your body, which of course naturally brings us to F. Murray Abraham, picked again as part of the diverse crew, but you wouldn't know it and he wouldn't bother it so we can actually just say good voice acting liked it or not yeah he had a really good booming voice he really sold the egyptian god thing i've always liked f murray abraham amadeus was the big one that he was in last action hero with arnie as well he has a, a substantial yet small role in that star trek insurrection as well he's the villain in that he has that presence and you need someone that can be very theatrical and he can be very theatrical so his voice is Conshu was excellent. One of my favourite things actually about this is the voice. I did like Conshu as a god because he seemed to be the right combination of I do give some of a damn about the human race because I am getting involved in interfering with them. So I'm not just in it for my own powers. I do care that some of you are treating each other badly. Despite that, I'm so far removed from you humans that I am prepared to treat you as objects to get what I want. And part of selling that to me is the idea that your God can sound really annoyed when a human is being an idiot. And I thought he was (laughs) just the right level of condescending to everybody he met as part of the comedy. Yeah, but he's also easy to underestimate as well because he does come across as quite distracted and flippant sometimes, as if that's covering up what his true intent is. It's Mm. almost the thing that some politicians that I won't name do, where they act stupid, where they're actually doing some really scary stuff in the background that they don't want you to be paying attention to. I feel like Concha is doing that to a point, and that certainly is true of his relationship with Mark and or Stephen. Yeah, definitely. He's playing them. It is part of a magic trick, an illusionist's magic trick rather than yeah. real magic. And he's not above using that on either of them. Absolutely. So we've got definitely a couple of people that we liked. I don't normally do this though and come out to the director because I don't normally see it. I think that's just because I'm not looking for it. I'm not trained to look for it, but I did actually have to look here at the directors of these to Notice the difference between a couple of the episodes. And I really liked the first episode. And there was a few episodes later that I didn't get on well with. And I noticed that the ones that I did like, in the main, it was Mohammed Dieb himself that was directing them. Now, I know you'll have not necessarily encountered, unless you're going to tell me you know Egyptian cinema, I need to ask you do you know Egyptian cinema? Or? I do not. You do it's not. It's no, one I... of my blind spots. <laughs> yeah, fair enough. But I do recognize that you notice directors more than me so i think i did notice his hand in it being a step up from some of the others but as somebody as i say who recognizes directorial skill better than me did you see the same or do you reckon i'm making that up based on the script instead or the actor quality instead no there was definite differences i think the mohammed diab episodes were better he was overseeing the whole thing though so yeah you don't really know what people are actually doing in the midst of these productions because they are so big and bloated and complicated. You hear about director changes on the bigger MCU movies and Mm. the big thing on Black Widow, for example, was one of the first directors that they approached. I don't remember her name, but she was approached with it being the selling point that don't worry about the action sequences. And the response was, well, I would want to make one of these films so I could do the action sequences. Why is it appealing to not have to do them? Why else would I want to do the film? Other than to work with actors and explore emotional stuff and whatever. But part of the draw of doing one of these projects would be 
I get to do some fun action. That'll be cool. But there is a machine involved and I don't know if it's different in the way that they produce the TV. I don't think it's radically different because if we look at all the shows, they all have overseers, whether that be directors or writing teams. It's the same names that you see across all however many episodes. So they have a compartmentalized showrunner in effect. And that was what Mohamed Diab's job here was. Yeah. But he couldn't direct all six episodes. I guess that was too big an undertaking. But yeah, the ones he did were stronger. I think his hand was on it more than anything else. People have commented on the fact that in this show, they built sets, which shouldn't be remarkable. But in an MCU project, it kind of is. Because yeah. you look at a lot of quote-unquote set photos for MCU stuff and it's people standing in front of a green screen. They're not anywhere. But in this, they're filming outside. They're filming actually in the desert. I think they actually filmed in Egypt. Mm -hmm. So the wind blows their hair and all that stuff. All the stuff that you can't really easily replicate in the studio. Stuff that's just random about the fact that you're on this location. People are sweating because it's Egypt and it's hot. (laughs) Stuff like that. You can't naturally replicate that, at least very easily, under studio conditions. So there was a reality to it, I suppose, in some ways. I wonder where they did shoot, actually, because I do remember seeing some chat online that Dieb was hoping to get a second season because he wanted to shoot the second season in Egypt. So I I do wonder if they had to get some other location to represent Egypt in this particular one, or at least maybe some of it was in Egypt, but a lot of it was elsewhere. However, that doesn't take away from what you've said. They definitely did this outside location shooting, and they got all of that stuff in. I mean, yeah, you're going to go somewhere hot and seeing people swear. Hungary, according to Google. They were filming in Hungary. A couple of people I know from Eastern Europe tell me that because it's in the middle of a big landmass, in the winter it's ridiculously cold and in the summer it's ridiculously hot. So, yeah, mm. the heat was going to be real. Yeah. Hungary, Slovenia and Jordan are the three main filming places. Yeah, Jordan. Oh, well, there you go. There's going to definitely the desert. be some yeah. sand and some desert there then. <laughs> Fair enough. Equally fair enough then to say that we felt that we saw his hand in it and it was worthwhile. And it's nice to see a bit of competence in that sort of selection, actually. Maybe it's the sort of thing that if you feel like you see a lot of green screen, you can notice the thing you like is missing. But if it's there, you don't notice it. So I think I'm just happy to say if we are actually recognizing that someone's done something good, then I'm just pleased to do that alone, which is good. I don't want to leave representation behind there. I'm staying under my new moon just for a moment, because there's one last point on this that, again, I think they did the right thing, and I think it did it well. But because it was different to what you normally get, it stands out. But maybe it stands out in the way that it shouldn't stand out, and that's almost as interesting and telling about our day and age which is the use of the Egyptian mythology, or rather, the reduced use of it. If you were watching this sort of show 10 years ago, 20 years ago, there would have been vast quantities of statues of gods, hieroglyphs everywhere. There would have been cats walking around to make you know that there's a cat god. The walls would have been plastered in it. (laughs) And a lot of it has been pulled back for this. You do get the Eye of Horus, which is a reasonably standard thing. You've seen Scargate, it's been discussed. Things like that, it's going to be one of the ones that comes up a, a lot. But I think we've already agreed that we preferred it being done in a more natural way. But I do wonder, if, if you're looking out there, have you seen anybody saying, oh, I wish it was a bit more Egyptian? Or do you reckon that the audiences have said, no, we're all glad that it's a bit more natural? 
Yeah, I don't think there was any complaints about the lack of Egyptian imagery, I suppose. Like you say, the hieroglyphics and whatever else. I certainly didn't come across it. I don't spend an awful lot of time on social media, so I'm not going to say it wasn't there. But nobody I spoke to was commenting on that in any way. I guess it wasn't really on people's minds. I don't know. Maybe it was because I watch a lot of Stargate or used to. Maybe. It. it was one of those things that I was looking out for, thinking, oh, I wonder if they'll do this. And it would have been a mistake. Yeah, I guess you might be expecting that maybe we're in a pyramid. Let's not trigger the curse or whatever. Those trappings that you normally get. Absolutely. I was totally expecting this Orientalism not to be present, but I feared that it would be present. Now, I shouldn't have been because once I'd looked at it afterwards and found who the director was, I should have been like, oh, yeah, fair enough. He's going to do it right. That's fine. <laughs> and there was a couple of unexpected things, such as an Egyptian burial for Alexander the Great. Wasn't something I would have seen coming. I wouldn't have seen it coming in the plot. I completely understand it from the history and i actually don't know it completely well enough but his body was fought over i think when he died and all of the generals that split up his territory all definitely wanted to say i am the most relevant person to take over the throne and i didn't know that i think ptolemy did actually get the body and did do the burial okay so historically I was like, yeah, fair enough, actually. That makes a lot of sense. You don't need to know any of that. And even I here am stumbling over it because I can't remember it well enough. So you you clearly don't need to know it to enjoy it. But I think that sort of thing in there, if you do have the knowledge, greater knowledge than me, is saying, oh, that actually makes sense. To me, that goes with this whole idea of getting the pattern recognition and getting the voices copied, looking into your history and saying, what are we going to put in here? We could either have somebody going, ooh, curse of the tomb, Or we could pick something historically relevant, like having Alexander the Great's body. And it's that effort putting into it of making it more real that, yeah, we can contractualate them on, Yeah, I think. The symbology then that they are using is the symbology of modern world. And I think there's probably good enough reason in here to go back and rewatch this series. So I'm going to do that. Did you pick up on any of the meanings of the songs that were used or... Are you someone who would say, I totally saw the third reflection that's clearly Jake in the image of the cupcake van window? I'm going to say no. I looked all this stuff (laughs) up afterwards, but I'll give you the benefit of the doubt. Did you notice any of all that stuff? No, I noticed clues to Jake throughout, but I never noticed that specific one. But as you say, it'll be one if you rewatch it, you'll pick up on potentially, but some of them are probably really subtle. Yes. That's something I might not notice even in a third viewing unless someone told me it was there. But there's no need. That's a sort of bonus and Easter egg that I think because they've taken all the false symbology out and left that in there for you, I honestly believe there's still enough that we can go through and rewatch it. So I totally intend to do that. Oh yeah, I'd want to watch it as a combined piece. And if I'd had time before this podcast, I would have rewatched the whole thing, but I just didn't. So. I didn't. But I would like to watch it as a full six-episode thing, knowing where it all ends up and just seeing how it flows together. There is merit in doing that, I think. Before I move on then and wax this moon slightly, are there any other characters that you want to bring up and talk about that I've missed? But don't worry about Moon Knight, I've got him covered. And don't worry about the villain, because I've got him covered. But I wouldn't want to leave alone any of the other actors if you want to bring up something that you particularly liked or someone that you particularly liked? Not really. Nothing especially jumped out at me beyond the ones that you've said as such. I suppose the background, Stephen's background, his boss haranguing him and stuff, that was all good texture. Mm, yeah. The woman he goes on a date with, 
in the first episode or doesn't go on a date with. Wow, well, yeah. <laughs> she's only really in that one scene and then a phone call after that yes. point. But she stood out for some reason. I guess it was that we're going out on Friday or whatever day and then he wakes up and it's Saturday or whatever day. He wakes up and he's missed it. Yeah. I don't know why that stood out to me, but I quite like the, I guess, London texture to the little setting he talks to that street performer that doesn't say anything that kind of stuff yeah that living statue was a nice little trick i thought because i've always remember seeing something in a show ages back where a writer turns to another writer and says give him someone to talk to so you don't have to do exposition give him someone to talk to and as soon as i saw that living statue i thought yep that's clever you can get stephen's perspective on things without exposition and without having to really introduce another character that you've got to deal with the motivations because what's my motivation to sit still brilliant <laughs> so you get a freebie there i particularly enjoyed that you've therefore segued nicely into us striding forth with the waxing moon our standout moments and the living statue was one of mine so i feel like i've had one of mine so I can come to you and ask highlights first of all, best part of the show. I won't limit you to one. You can have what you like, but I want to know the best of the show from your perspective. The best part of the show for me was Oscar Isaac performing with himself. Right. He has such great chemistry with himself and I'm sure there can be a listicle that's done somewhere. I'm not going to do it, but it could be done somewhere on the top 10 actors that interact well with themselves. Yes. And he would be on that list. <laughs> he would be definitely there because he's so good. And the physicality of the two characters, the voice is different. Everything is different. It's one of those where you look at him in both roles and you forget it's the same guy sometimes because he's just so good at it. And mm -hmm. that's a rare skill. It definitely is. But it also speaks to why he was probably interested in this project because he gets to do this. He gets to play, as it turns out, four different characters across this, because he does a bit of conchure as well. Oh, I never thought of it that way, the fourth. Yeah, no, fair enough. He did three accents as well, didn't he? Because he did the third accent at the end. And if I understand it, Jake wasn't originally Spanish. He's a London cab driver, but Oscar Isaac's background is an, is he Ecuador? I've even written it here and I've lost it now. He's Ecuadorian or no, he's Cuban Guatemalan. So he's definitely got a Spanish language heritage. So he got to use all parts of his capability to make, as you say, three distinct characters. Yeah. You have to change Jake because you can't have two English personalities or you could, but why would you? Where then you're straying into some, what are we going to make him? This guy has to be Yorkshire or something. Yeah. Comedy Cornwall, you want to avoid Bristolian or whatever. So he said actually having a slight farmer accent himself. But because of that, <laughs> I know. So Oscar Isaac playing against himself. Definitely enjoyed that. Is Moonlight the best part of this show then? Or was there other things that you thought were also up there as noteworthy? It's one of those weird things, the Moonlight part of it, because... In a way, it reminded me of old school superhero television, sort of. I haven't really seen much of the, is it the 70s Hulk show? The Lou Ferrigno, Bill Bixby one. And it's, he's going to be Bruce Banner for most of the episode. And in the last 10 minutes, he'll turn into the Hulk. It almost felt like that with Moon Knight in a way, because we're going to cut about as either Stephen or Mark or both for a while. And then at the end of the episode, he'll turn into Moon Knight and get into a scrap. And it was certainly that way for the first three episodes, really. It's not as transparently structural as that, but it did pop into my head in that way. So I actually felt like the Moon Knight aspect of it, the being Moon Knight part was oddly in the background. You've even got, what is it, two episodes where he doesn't become Moon Knight at all. Yeah. Because he can. I think that's one of the reasons that I did enjoy this, though, because I know 
connected one of the points that Oscar Isaac said when picking to do this, choosing to do this, was that he thought it would be a proper character study. And you just say, that's what's going to get an actor involved. Not that you get a funky suit to wear and you get paid a lot of money. Well, he just wears a motion capture tracking balls, I guess, for the suit. So yeah, you don't even get the costume. Don't get that. But yeah, he's going to be attracted in by it. And for me, that was one of the things I was most pleased to see because the street level heroes are the ones that I'm always going to like the most because their problems are going to be so very personal. And that was my fear for Moon Knight. My fear for Moon Knight was that it was just going to be a matter of waiting until we can get to the full moon so he can knock over that skyscraper and then the powers and the real CGI would begin. And it wasn't. It was a personal story about a person with a mental health condition trying to deal with it. And I don't know that it was a real in-depth study of that particular mental health condition. But again, that makes it even better because, as we said with the representation, they weren't trying to bring DID to the front and raise awareness of it. It was just that here's a character who happens to have something that is going to be very reminiscent of what some people out there have got. But it's not center stage, but it is an important part of the character. Who is center stage? I was going to raise one of my favorite parts of all of this Moon Knight. He said without having the idea himself, but it seemed to me that it was one of the most respectful mental health considerations that I've ever seen. And you'd think in the modern day, where writers are really liberal, that we would automatically be better at covering these sorts of things when all of Hollywood is saying me too and make sure you're paying attention to the new woke movement and do the right thing. But I saw Gotham and that was hideous <laughs> what they did. And that's not that old. I can't even remember now. How old is Gotham? I know I reviewed it. Yeah, it's not that old. It's contemporary with the Arrowverse, isn't it? Well, yeah. And that was just hideous treatment. And there's a few times I've said on our podcast before, the bit that I didn't like about X, Y, or Z was the treatment of mental health disorders. It's always been a bit of a bugbear for me. So I was watching this again with a bit of trepidation, but I don't think at any point... Was any of it disrespectful? Challenge me on that if you think. Is there any part of it that you thought was disrespectful? No, I didn't find it disrespectful. Maybe Phase 4, but particularly the TV show aspect of Phase 4, has all been about mental health in some way. WandaVision was grief. You have Falcon and Winter Soldier, where it was the insecurities of Bucky and Sam in different ways, and Bucky's guilt and so on. They had issues to work through. Loki is a big existential crisis about, I shouldn't even exist, that kind of stuff. Yeah. What if less so, but it was in there. Hawkeye is about his place in the world in a lot of ways. So they have covered mental health in varying degrees across it. And I do think they've handled it sensitively for the most part. Certainly the ones I can personally relate to, mm. I've found it to be pretty on the money. In this, I don't have any grounding in what the disorder is or how yeah. it works. And I don't think most people watching would either. And I've read some things here and there where people have said that they're not doing it accurately. Right. Whether they were intending to or not, I don't know. But I find myself confused by it more than anything else in terms of the mechanics of it. Because I've seen other people who review it refer it to as the default or dominant personality. And I wasn't getting that vibe from Stephen or Mark. To me, they were complete people. Yeah. And obviously the show points out that Stephen was created for Mark to protect. It was a part of himself that he could protect from the horrible things he was enduring. Mm. But 
And then you look at him, he has a life, he has a job, he has friends, kind of. He's a fully formed person, as is Mark. So I guess my perception of it was that the alternate personalities aren't complete people, they're just facets of yourself, that kind of thing. But I don't know if that's right or not. And I found myself rubbing up against that as I was watching it. It wasn't really bothering me because I was just enjoying the ride. And I just kept thinking about it as, these are two people sharing the same body. And that was in my head throughout. And that was how I understood it. And the show seems to support that as well. So I didn't really think about it from the DID perspective because the show wasn't leaning into it, as you said. Yeah, no, fair enough. I think I, again, I'm coming at this without knowing enough about DID, as you say. I think even saying that, though, I still felt I know enough to think that it's respectful because it wasn't, one, making a big deal of it, and two, making sure that we pitied him or, or made fun of him. So I would say generally it was respectful. I do admit, though, fair enough. If somebody's going to come and say it's not a completely realistic portrayal, then I wouldn't be able to challenge them. Although I would say that I don't know that I saw, you don't see enough of Jake, but I don't know that I saw Stephen as a complete personality. I get that he was able to operate purely by himself and he was distinct. And that's a good thing for the purposes of storytelling. But I never saw him as being a complete personality because he doesn't really have any friends. He doesn't really have a life. He's shown to be at home taking care of his fish and reading about Egyptian mythology, and then he's shown to be at work, in which case he deals with about two people, three <laughs> at most, and he doesn't therefore expand beyond that. You don't see him at the pub, you don't see him watching TV, you don't see him shopping. Now, of course, a lot of that would have been really boring, so they couldn't <laughs> have shown it to you, but they could have done, actually, I'm thinking about it, maybe they could have done, they could have given you a montage of him living his Stephen life and played some music. I think it would have been rubbish, but I think they could have done it. But because we don't see it, I was actually happy to believe that he is not a complete human being. He is somebody that lives this really, really pokey, narrow life. Go to work, earn your money, get enough food, phone your mom tragic but nonetheless he found his mum and get involved in one hobby but your average person has to deal with a lot more than that so i don't know if it was done on purpose i don't know if it was just an artifact of needing to speed through the storytelling but i wouldn't have said if he was completely distinct either way potentially respectfully done you do get people without did that are like that though they go to work they go home they do their one or two things and then that's sure. them they isolate themselves because that's where they're more comfortable. The classic introvert thing. And yeah. that was what they were doing with Stephen in that first episode, really, before they started bringing in that there's something weird going on here. It was establishing them as just being socially awkward and yeah. all that stuff. It's your classic nerd archetype in some yeah. ways, although they didn't do it in the disrespectful way. It was just, Definitely. this guy is more comfortable in his own company. He goes to work because he has to. At least he works in a place that he quite likes because he's really into this Egyptian mythology stuff. Right. He muddles through his own life in that way. He just doesn't feel comfortable with other people. And there's that rug pull as well, where because Stephen is your main character throughout most of this, and Mark is almost a secondary character because mm. Stephen does most of the stuff. Yeah. And then they do the... Actually, it's the other way around. I was the original guy and you're my creation. So that's a twist in a way, I suppose. I don't know if... People that are familiar with the Moon Knight character wouldn't see it as a twist, but I saw it as a twist in a way because I just assumed that Stephen was the main guy and they could have easily framed it so that Mark was the creation so that he could do the stuff that Stephen can't do. It could have easily been the other way around. It could have been. I never thought of it that way, actually, because I think I 
without meaning to perfectly accepted him as the creation. I can't even tell you why, because they did put it in as a twist. It did come in as a personality. It's possibly one of those things where I saw too many things on YouTube and I watched too many of the trailers beforehand. And I'm, I'm actually starting to want to cut back on that because I think based on this, I can't say I was clever enough to have done that in my head, especially without knowing Moon Knight. So I'm starting to think I've not poisoned myself, but ruined certain things myself by watching too many of these trailers. I don't for a lot of them, actually. Try and avoid them. The trailer doesn't give you anything either way, I don't think. I don't remember the trailer well enough, but it doesn't give you too much. No, but if you watch an analysis video, that's where you get it. It will come from, here's this trailer breakdown, here's what this means, here's what that means, or here's what it means in the comics. Moon Knight was originally Mark Spector and Stephen Grant is a creation of him. Stephen Grant does this, etc. Yeah, that would have come up in any of those videos that you would watch. That's it then, that's what's done it. Nonetheless, I'm happy enough to say that some of the stuff that I recognise as being the easy way to treat mental health badly, they didn't come up. At no point did they ever have somebody on screen saying, isn't that guy weird? Oh, he's not one of us. He's one of those freaky people. Obviously, they don't say it like that. It's done in different language. But you know what I mean? When they clearly show that the character is abnormal and not one of us normal people. And it's just hateful when they do that. His boss thinks he's weird, but not for that reason. She thinks he's weird for different reasons. Yeah, because he's interested in Egypt and she just wants him to get on with his job. Yeah, he just has an annoying boss. Yeah, that's good, normal stuff. But the use of loss of time instead of him acting weird is something we should totally come back to because that was a, a much better way of doing it. But that will be under the next phase of the moon, so I'll hold off on that <laughs> just for now. I can give you some of my standout moments, if you like. Is there anything else you want to say I loved before I do my stuff? I think a lot of what I loved is what we'll come back to anyway. Sure. Stuff like the villain relationship and Layla as a character, all that stuff. I loved a lot of the big stuff in this. Maybe some of the smaller stuff as well that feeds into it. Well, we'll come back to them. We wouldn't be doing our job if we weren't going to talk about those things. Yeah, absolutely. Right, we'll leave it to that then. That's good. I mean, give me some of my positive moments. We've already talked about the living statue. The joy on the Egyptian woman's face at the idea of an Egyptian superhero. I've got that one. Those were little things for me. But some of the little things are so standout. I watched the first episode and there was a point in it where I thought, you can't show me this. I can't watch that. And it's the bit where he realizes he's missed his date and he's got the box of chocolates and he goes back to his flat and he's just miserably ramming the chocolates into his face <laughs> and he's got melted chocolate down the sides of his face and he's just miserable oh that was heartbreaking you can't just put that on there obviously you can because it was good but <laughs> it was so good that's possibly one of my best bits of the whole series even though it's just such a minor point does he put them in the fish tank or am i making that up i don't remember that i just remember watching his poor little face almost in tears so he may have done i'll look out for that when i rewatch it so that's a good way to kill your fish <laughs> Which he does, or someone does. Well, maybe it was the chocolate then. Probably <laughs> not, but it could have been. After all that, the big surprise is you, you killed your own fish. The other things that I like with the blackouts, definitely want to come back to them, though. I think some of the most standout stuff for me, though, is just to say is the, the smaller stuff and the details. We are going to have to talk about the big stuff. We are going to have to talk about the finale and so on, where it goes. But that's why I think I'd have to say this show is possibly not quite as good as Hawkeye, because that big stuff, for me, did not hit as hard as some of the small moments. So if I had to pick out what was your best parts of 
all of Moon Knight, I would say it was all the little character details. Not that the plot was rubbish, but the best part of it is definitely all the little character details that they put in. We got to really enjoy Mark and Stephen, and they even get a whole episode bouncing back off each other when they're in the asylum, which again, I don't know if I've just said this, if I'm repeating myself or not, but one of the most respectful mental health facilities I've ever seen. And I regret using the word asylum already because I specifically got rid of that from my notes and put mental health facility and now I've just made a mistake. Easy to slip up. Well, the episode was called Asylum, so you can be forgiven. Now, was it? Oh, okay. <laughs> Either way, I'm kind of happier that they did present to me a believable mental health facility that was respectful. So again, it's the little details. It's the fact that somebody went to all this effort of not overselling anything, but instead going down right into the minutiae and putting effort and thought into all of it. So it's always going to be one of my favorite series because of it. That's the good stuff, though. Like I said, there are some things that might not be the best. Do you want to give me any low lights? Worst part of the show for you, even if it's relatively worse, you don't have to hate it. What's at the bottom? The main thing that stands out to me is the, I'm going to call it the Tomb Raiding episode, because they could have done so much fun stuff with that. Instead, it just felt a bit basic and by the numbers in terms of any Indiana Jones knockoff that you might watch. And they obviously had the Indiana Jones knockoff thing in this (laughs) show itself. But what they showed us with them going through the tomb, you could have done more there. That was something that bugged me a little bit. The asylum or mental health facility stuff, I felt like that was a little bit rushed as well because you went very quickly from he's here to now they're trying to escape and then they were doing the jumping between worlds and so on. I alluded to that earlier. I know it's based on a celebrated comic run featuring this character. It's something that could have sustained a whole season. Some people have made connections between this show and Legion, which is obviously a show that we covered. We were the only Legion podcast on the internet, remember? Audience, please don't Google that. Just don't Google that. I did. It was a mistake. We were the only podcast doing it, so everyone was really annoyed that it took us three weeks to do our next episode and so on. It was was quite a time. But Legion made the asylum mental health facility aspect of it one of its foundational elements, Mm. definitely early on, and it kept coming back. So you can see why people might describe this as Diet Legion in some ways. MCU Legion. Yeah, Yeah, because it will never go as weird as Legion did. If it did, it would be completely inaccessible to its target audience. I wouldn't suggest that everybody watch Legion because it's a difficult show to get along with. We did. We had a great time trying to figure out what was going on, but you can see why it would frustrate a lot of people. So they could have done a lot more with that. Even in the MCU, I guess, template, it could have been more interesting there because one thing we'll probably talk about is the lack of MCU references. There's one or two, but imagine if they'd done at least a couple of episodes or a whole season. Season two is the asylum season. That'd be great. Yeah. And what they could suggest with that is that Mark Spector has concocted the entire MCU as a fantasy. So you have Captain America figures or whatever else, Iron yeah. Man stuff. We've all seen episodes of TV shows, fantasy or sci-fi TV shows, where they suggest this is all in someone's head. Oh, Buffy yeah. did a really notable example of that. Star Trek, yeah, Stargate, they all did it. Yeah. yeah, and you have a bit of fun with it because it sells it on how ridiculous the premise is. It's what convinces the, or tries to convince the character experiencing it that they're insane. Because mm. how could this possibly be real? This thing that the audience is accepting is real in the world that the show takes place in. Can you imagine if they did that, though, and they actually convinced you 
by putting a lot of effort into it. See, all of those films right back since Iron Man the first was completely a dream of this guy. That would have been just hideous. And they say things like, do you believe that a purple space alien managed to wipe out half the universe by snapping his fingers? Yeah. Do you know how ridiculous that sounds? Which it obviously does to us in our normal world. Yeah, But I think I'd agree then in general with that. If I take what you've just said and expand it out to its natural conclusion, the worst part of the show is the fact that we think it would have benefited from more episodes. Because my worst part was episode three. I really struggled with episode three because I felt like it raced through. We need to go here, 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 and here. We need to fulfill plot point X, Y, and Z. We need to get the item, beat the bad guy. And it really felt like somebody was doing an entire series in one episode, just trying to race through what was almost part of the Indiana Jones, the mummy plot. It's the bits that you do with the bad guys before you get to the real bad guys that are the supernatural entities. It's the human villain that you defeat on the way to beating the supernatural one. And it's, it's on all of them. And I thought, ah, that's such a shame because the guy, the ex-boyfriend, or, well, he wasn't a boyfriend, sorry, the ex-connection of Layla's, who's a bit of an art collector, and you think, oh, I feel like you're going back to the tropes here a little bit. It was useful enough to indicate the powers of the suit because you really got to learn what the suit can do in that episode. So I do understand the point of each part. They needed to find the MacGuffin, the map, because you always need to find a map. doesn't matter what Indiana Jones stuff you do, you need to find a map. You need to know where you're going. Although I do like Mohammed Diab's comments, and it came to Egypt, you don't need a map to get to the pyramids. They're right on the edge of the city. If you want to find the pyramids, look up. You can't miss them. They're right there. <laughs> so the idea of having to use things like the map, and so on, I thought, probably could have cut some of this stuff, actually. And then they would have given more time to some of the other plots. Although, to be honest, it's not like the plots that they brought up in that episode were awful, though, because knowing what the suit can do, great. Giving them some other people to get past is not a bad idea, but it was rushed through. They really had to go through that French guy really quickly. And it doesn't help that he's only there for that. That's all he does. Yeah. After they kick his ass, he disappears. Aye. And the actor's dead, the actor playing him. That was unfortunate. They didn't lose time with him because of that, though, did they? No, it happened after. Yeah, so it didn't need to go that way. But then you'd be thinking what you said. If you've got all of these plots that you're going through, because I bet that was a character from the comics, like the mental health facility in his head is from comics. Yeah. You coined it already before the spoilers. They went through and ticked all the boxes. So you have had Moon Knight. I'd agree with you. I would like to maybe had a couple more episodes or maybe I would have saved some of it for a season two. Even if you're not going to get season two, don't worry about that because you could go into more detail of some of the plots. So I might say to you, if you got to pick, which bits would you have definitely left out to season two? The mental health facility is the one that stands out most prominently. That's your cliffhanger ending in season one, isn't it? He wakes up there and gets told... You're insane. This thing that you think is real isn't real. And here's all the examples of it. And then you explore it in season two. Oh, so is that your post credit scene? So he defeats Amit and Arthur Harrow. And then your post credit scene is he's had to do something so crazy from other people's perspective that they end up putting him in this facility. Or it costs him emotionally too much 
to realize everything that's going on. So then he has a mental breakdown. Or are you thinking about actually not resolving the gods at all and leaving that till season two? It could be that you just don't resolve your plot in any way. Or you do it in some way, but the cost of it is he just wakes up and thinks that it's all been a delusion. Mm. Or he's getting told by everyone around him that it's all been a delusion. And then that gives you your button into season two. And then in season two, you do whatever. You explore the idea of that and maybe have him sit with it for a while, for at least a couple of episodes before you start to unravel it a bit. That would be great, I think. Or it could be great. It could potentially be great. And maybe there were operating under the assumption that Oscar Isaac won't want to do more than one of these because I think they're contractually doing it differently to the used to. You used to hear that such and such has been signed up for a nine-film deal with Marvel. We'll use them somewhere. And now it's just, we'll sign you up for this project because it helps you attract busy actors, I suppose. Yeah. So I'm only committed to doing this one thing and then we'll see how it goes. And Oscar Isaac has said himself he's basically done with it and a season two would entirely depend on what the story is yeah what would season two be though based on this because everything that people seem to know about moon knight was breezed past one six episode stint yeah they'd have to go into bringing in crossovers i think which might be a bit of a, a shame to not be able to get enough moon knight in but i do think something we're going to come back to in one of our other phases of the moon is the necessity of raising certain issues for thor 4 essentially the gods that needed to be resolved in order to give us a good link into thor 4 so i'm definitely going to bring that back before i do move on to my other phases though have we covered then possibly what we think is the weaker part of the show with that i don't want to move on if there's something else you want to bring up no, I think we'll keep coming back to it as well because sure. they are foundational elements, aren't they? They're, hmm. they're big parts of it. I mean, it's a six-chapter thing and every chapter is slightly different in terms of yeah. what it's trying to do. You've almost got six seasons of television in terms of structure because the first episode is the horror episode, the second yeah. episode is whatever. And you, as I say, breeze through all these ideas that you could potentially be covering in many years of content. Mm. All right, let's take one of those points then and bring it into our third phase under the light of the full moon, which obviously has to be Moon Knight himself. We can't miss talking about him. I mean, he was going to come up already, but let's make sure we hit all of those bases. We've done a few of them. We've talked about his multiple personalities, the distinctiveness, the way that it was pretty awesomely played by Oscar Isaac himself, and the respectful nature of the mental health condition that he's got. We've hinted at a couple of times throughout all of that, though, the storytelling that comes because of it and how that's been brought to the front. And that's a good thing because then all the rest of it is just, it happens to be who that person is. So I think we can then pick up these storytelling points that we've alluded to, but not detailed. The key point is always going to be the blackouts. Personally, I thought the blackouts were absolutely fantastic with maybe the exception of the final one. But if I put the final one aside, because we need to talk about the finale later, cut that one out, talk about all the rest of them. I thought the blackouts were, in the first episode, hilarious. And then throughout some of the other episodes, they did actually help to give me Stevens, specifically Stevens, occasionally Marks, but specifically Stevens' feeling of disorientation. That loss of, well, to a certain extent, it's, oh my God, mom, it's happened again which I always find a little bit moving. Anytime a character who's actually a superhero phones their mom, I can't help but feel for them. <laughs> that just really gets to me. But yeah, the disorientation, where am I? What's going on? 
Why are there a lot of people suddenly on the floor, knocked out, wounded and injured, and all the other people are pulling their children away from me because I'm the dangerous one? I just work in a gift shop. How am I dangerous? That disorientation and also just the comedy of it, because I know I'm known as the one that doesn't like fun on this podcast, but I say the blackouts for me were hilarious. So did you have the same response? Did you think it was good? Yeah, I enjoyed the blackouts in the first episode where he wakes up, I forget what country he's in, but he wakes up in another country. Mm. And he says, where the hell am I? What is going on here? And he's got Conchu spraffing in his ear. Give it to Mark. Get Mark involved. Who the hell is Mark? It's great because you're following Stephen's perspective. You're asking the same questions he is. And then you have the ice cream van chase where he intermittently wakes up and blacks out. Because you've seen action films and Marvel films before, you can fill in the blanks of that. You know what happened to get to that point. You know what happened after that point. So it's great to see that broken sequence. And I'm glad they didn't give him the temptation of, let's show you the sequence from the other perspective later in the season. Because I already figured out how it was going, what the beats were. That was fine. And as you say, the coming to and everyone's unconscious around him. I was like, what the hell happened here? And again, you know how that sequence went. Mark took over and beat the crap out of them. And it probably looked amazing. It saves you a bit of money as well if you keep doing it that way, I suppose, because you're just not choreographing a whole sequence or animating a whole sequence. So, yeah, the blackouts were good. And then you started getting them being less comedic and more insidious later on because once Stephen got his head around the fact that Mark was a fixture that existed, he knows who Mark is, he understands that when I blackout, I am this guy or this guy takes over, and vice versa. So you start understanding that connection, they start to get more comfortable with that, and then suddenly it's the, did you do this? No. Did you do this? No. Well, it only happens once until, again, the finale, which you've already said we'll get back to, but is it only the once? I think it is. It's in that third episode where people get stabbed or something like that, and then there's the you let us go a minute ago thing. and So there's the hint at the third personality at that point. So, yeah, I like that. And I think they didn't overdo it, which I was worried that they would as well. I thought that every episode it would just be, we're just going to have broken action sequences. You made your point and got on with it. I'm always a fan of that because sometimes it's, we did this thing and people liked it, or we did this thing and thought we were really clever for doing it. That's all we are now. Yeah, yeah then it gets worse every time they repeat it. Yeah, I think it would have been worse to have seen the action sequences in the cupcake van because it couldn't have been that amazing. It's a fight in a van. We've seen James Bond do this so many times. I'm not sure there would be a way of making that truly amazing. And it does make me wonder if it was one of those Indiana Jones moments where people are all talking around, right, we're going to do this, we're going to do that. And the actor comes up and says, Indy's got a gun, I just shoot the guy. And everybody goes, oh yeah, that's hilarious. Because it could have been exactly the same thing. How are we going to make this cupcake chase scene interesting? <laughs> if we just cut it out and make it a flashback and some comedy pose at the end, that's brilliant. And it was actually the time where it would work that way. There was a riff on the Indiana Jones moment, actually. there was The guy does some knife foo and then Oscar Isaac just punches him in the face. Yeah, they do do some good references back to Indiana Jones in this. And whereas Indy might not have aged perfectly well in terms of representation of the lands that he goes to, and almost like we're going back and fixing the past a bit and then making fun of it as well, as you say, by bringing in the fake Indiana Jones on the video. The other thing that we talked about, though, that we've not gone into detail is I wonder something you like less because I'm sure we've said on some previous podcast although maybe it's something we've only chatted to each other about so i can't quite be sure is the need to bring everything back to childhood as the origin so you like the blackouts but what did you think about the idea of 
it's all from his childhood. I don't have a problem with the childhood aspect of it as a rule. It's not every time I'll hate that. And it's more specifically in Picard recently that I've found it unbearably trite. And I think it's a problem with modern writing, the whole everyone's got a traumatic or tragic backstory Mm. and that's how you create sympathy with characters i suppose whereas in this i was already invested in the characters before they did that episode so i was expecting there to be a reason why this scenario exists why there is two personalities why two people are sharing a body so when Mm. it became that when the reason was Again, so that Mark could construct a persona that he could protect from the abuse that he was receiving. I was okay with it. It made sense. It had to be something extreme. And it probably had to come from a time where he couldn't defend himself. Because you've got Mark Spector, who is incredibly capable. He is able to beat up a dozen guys. He's got those skills. And now he has superpowers as well. So all that. But as a child, that's when he's at his most vulnerable. And I don't think they did too much with the relationship he had with his mother or father. So it was more about his reaction to that treatment. So you don't get the texture of the experience itself because he's only viewing it through his memories, through the eyes of childhood. So you won't know the ins and outs of such a thing. And the fact that he's blamed for his brother's death, you can understand that and mm. how it's not your fault and whatever. That all worked. That all really worked for me. And I thought it was pretty moving, actually, the way they did it, because I like how the memory is portrayed as something that he is terrified of or he feels immense guilt for. And from his perspective, it looks like he's responsible for the death of his brother, but he needs to be told and eventually is told it wasn't your fault. And that's what Stephen does. He's the rational side of him, isn't he? Wait, they get to help each other, is the point. The scene where they're at the gates of Osiris and they do it with metaphor. The two hearts become one where they start to come together. And in that one case, they actively help each other in metaphor by coming back together and sharing each other's powers, thoughts and beliefs. They have helped each other. So, yeah, the whole thing is taken then as part of the whole So he's not given a random backstory to explain something else. He is who he is because of his backstory. Interesting, you mentioned Picard. We can say then that in Picard it was something whereby the character already exists and was given a random add-on to explain something that didn't need explaining. It was just a way of eking out an extra bit of plot, where in this it wasn't an extra bit of plot at all. It was all part and parcel. In fact, it's the very reason why arguably Conchu pulls him into the temple and says, you'll be perfect for me. You're so screwed up that I can take advantage of this. And we're going to come back to that because we're going to talk about villains. So I totally agree with you. It was a clear part of the plot and had excellent purpose and was referred to throughout. Don't want to go straight into villains though, because we haven't dealt with Moon Knight himself completely. Because there was something else that we were talking about before between us that I did want to bring up, which is the idea of his powers. I was actually surprised, I think, when we were talking about it, because I thought that the powers were established. I loved the idea of Mr. Knight coming in as Stephen's version of the superhero. Put on the suit, put on the suit, and he ends up in a dapper white suit. That was really charming. And then they do bring them together at the end. I get that. They do actually start sharing powers when they're in the duet. But before that, I thought it was pretty well established that all Stephen gets is a suit. And what does Mark get? I thought he did get some clear abilities that defined him. But when we were talking before, 
I think you said you were unhappy with the suit or the abilities because you thought it was unclear. Is that right? I think that more speaks to the finale in terms of the problems with it because in the episode three fight, I was actually okay with what they were telling us about the suit and its capabilities. Right. As in, okay, he seems to be bulletproof and well he can be stabbed but it's not a big problem that kind of stuff mm. even though you don't really get a sense of how strong he is even Stephen has some powers he has some enhanced strength and things that's something he's really Ooh, yeah. excited about in the second yeah. episode and it stops him from splatting on the pavement when he falls out of a window yeah. yeah so he gets some powers and I think certainly in the finale which we promise we'll get to we keep doing this we keep saying don't worry we'll get to this and then maybe sometimes we do it's on the list. We're not mixing it. That's the waning moon. You won't miss it. Yeah, we'll get to it. But reading up on Moon Knight, the whole phases of the moon thing, they don't really explain that. In fact, he becomes Moon Knight during the day in the final episode, which surprised me. I thought it was something he could only do at night. But again, the show doesn't give you information either way. So it just seems like he's invincible when he's Moon Knight and you can maybe kill him. Well, you can definitely kill him when he's not because he dies. Yeah. Or seems to die. Well, he does die. Yeah, he's definitely brought back because he's in the afterlife. The thing about that, though, is I wasn't so worried about it because it's shown, not told. And I admit that showing, you do have to show it well enough for the audience to pick up on it. But if you went back and rewatched it, I wonder if you'd pick up on the subtleties more. I was okay with him being able to take on the suit during the day because otherwise it's this really crazy superhero thing when Thanos turns up and Moon Knight has to say, do you mind if we wait 12 hours before we fight? <laughs> and you just can't do that to your superheroes. Why did you have to turn up during the summer when the days exactly. are longer? <laughs> you turned up in the summer in Norway when there's only two hours of darkness. <laughs> so if you get that sort of weakness, the whole story's sort of over. So I'm, I wasn't bothered by that much. But the power level, I liked that at the end for the big final boss battle... Konshu makes it night and makes it a full moon. If we're going to have this fight, we're fighting under the full moon because you've just eaten all those souls and I need to be able to tackle you, Emmett. So my guy has to have all the power he's going to get. Nobody says it, and I hate it when they say it. If Konshu would have said, Mark, give me a few moments to summon the full moon so you're at full I would have hated that. We're awful. But they show you the full moon. So in all of the other points... I forget how many times they show you the moon. You see it in a reflection, you see it in the sky behind him, and it's not a full moon. And then at the end, it is a full moon. I was really happy, actually, with that, that it's not on stage exposition in someone's face all the time. But it's one of those things, then, that if you don't do it as exposition, is your audience going to miss it? So I do appreciate that's a tricky choice. But I think I got enough of it. Yeah, he's got the speed, the healing. But they do even give you that in the exposition. At one point, somebody does, I think it's Conchu, mentions the healing power. You need to do this so my suit can heal you. I'm sure that does come up as exposition, so they don't leave all of it to your imagination. And then the strength and the speed and the damage resistance, they can just show you. So I guess, yeah, I guess I didn't have too much of a problem. All of that's easy to show because you visualise it. It's fine. It's more the lack of establishing what the weaknesses are that I had an issue with because I don't know what can kill them. So therefore, I don't know what going into this fight means. I like to know those things when it comes to anything, really. Any MCU thing you can think of. Well, most of them, I suppose we could pick out. Well, do you get that, though? When they introduced 
Iron Man, fine. If he's not in his suit, he's a human. But they don't give you a weakness for Captain America. They don't give you a weakness for Thor, do they? Or, or do they? Well, Captain America's weakness is he is just a guy. If you shoot him in the face, he'll probably die. Right. He's close enough to just being human that you know what his weaknesses are. Right. You can overpower him quite easily. Thor is a bit of a similar problem, although you understand that certainly in the first film, he is made human and there he's vulnerable because he dies, quote unquote, in that film. Yeah. before he gets his hammer back. But then in Thor 2, your favourite film, when he's oh. fighting Malekith at the end, it's, well, I don't think he's in any danger here, really. That's a problem with that. Yeah. In Thor 3, he's fighting other gods. Yeah, okay, if you get stabbed with a weapon that's fashioned by a god, fine, it will kill him. Right. Stuff like that. And the Hulk, if you put him up against something that can handle him, he is... Defeatable. He gets beaten up by Thanos, for example. That's a problem in the later movies. I mean, the whole point about the Hulk is you wouldn't like me when I'm angry. And when I'm not angry, do what you like. Yeah. So, yeah, that's the problem with the later Hulks. He's actually now not got any weaknesses. One of the issues I'm wondering about with She-Hulk, actually, when everybody is effectively Superman with no weaknesses, then it's okay as long as you've got a Lex Luthor in there to outwit them. But if everybody ends up with the same storyline, because Captain Marvel will have the same storyline as She-Hulk will have the same storyline, because they all have to be outwitted because they've got so much power. I did think that Moon Knight avoided that, though. If he's not in the suit and he gets shot, then he dies. Yeah, but when he is in the suit, you have an entire episode almost that's a prolonged action sequence. And I don't know if he's in any danger. That's the problem. So that makes the action itself feel a bit... Pointless. Isn't that true of Iron Man, though? Because when he's in the suit, he is effectively invulnerable. I think that's more true in later iterations of Iron Man, but the first film does a really great job of he doesn't have much power left. And yeah. even in Infinity War, when he's beating on Thanos and he's using up all the, the, the little nanobots or whatever that builds his suit, you can see the suit yeah. wasting away. So it's, yeah, there are upper limits here. You get a sense of maybe not what they are, but you get a sense that they do exist. So... Yeah. I think other properties do it better. In the case of She-Hulk, for example, okay, maybe nobody can beat her up, but her problem will be, what do I need to do to solve this case? Yeah. There's your tension. And other Superman stories are like that as well. I can't be killed, but the person I need to protect is, and I don't know where they are. Yes. That kind of stuff. Maybe that's something then that could have been given more time to. Maybe it comes down to that, because when you've got the beasts summoned from the staff of Amit then he would have more trouble with them. But we didn't really have much time to set that up. They have the undead monsters. Those jackals, could they kill him? I don't know, presumably, because they're magic against magic. It's usually okay when an invincible-ish person or being comes up against something from their background, because then, okay, they can hurt each other, which is a bit of a cheat, the Sony approach to Marvel movie-making. When they did Venom and Venom 2 and Morbius, it's the villain is just him, but a different colour or whatever. <laughs> so you understand that they can kill each other because they are the same, which is really lazy. Whereas the challenge can be, here's a very different kind of villain for this kind of character, and here's how they can be a threat. Yeah. They do it with Harrow, they just turn him into a, a fighting machine in the same way. So it's just invincible people hitting each other as far as I'm concerned in the last episode, which is difficult to invest in. Let's do that then. Let's finish this phase of the moon by talking about the villains because we've dodged around them often enough. They are a good thing, I think, because they're so built into the plot. They're not a random person. It isn't just you need to solve this problem because you're the nearest superhero. They are all intimately connected. 
there are arguably two sets of villains, though, because you've got Arthur Harrow and Amit, who are the obvious villain, but then you're always presented as well as Khonshu as the other villain, and that comes in throughout as more and more people say, oh yeah, I, I used to hang out with Khonshu, yeah, he totally abused me as well. Really? That's not what I wanted to hear, or Stephen doesn't want to hear it, certainly. And then you meet the gods, and they're effectively either A, useless, or B, selfish, potentially both. And Damit herself compromises herself, even with her loyal followers, so they're certainly not pleasant people. Might as well start with the human perspective, though, because I do prefer that. Arthur Harrow himself. Did you like him? Yeah, I thought he was a really interesting villain, although, once again, it could be this, give him more time, let's have more episodes to explore this, because you do get the high-level point of view in his ideas, and I think one of the weaker parts of the season, I probably should have brought up during the weaker part of the season side of it, but bring it up here. I think it's important to Harrow as well, is the trial episode. I'm not going to call it the trial episode, the trial five minutes, mm. where they put Conchu on trial. There you have a concept that could probably have really been interesting across a whole episode, and that's where you bring in the whole Harrow as the previous avatar of Conchu thing, because you could maybe flash back to the point that their relationship broke down, or show you the reason why that broke down, and it gives you more context to what he's saying, that he'll never be done with you, it's all a trick, you don't want to be involved with him, etc, etc. But Harrow's plan of well minority report isn't it it's a magical minority yes. report or it's the same thing that hydra were trying to do in winter soldier we've identified these as potential threats we're just going to pick them off now so that we don't have to deal with them later when they either do or don't become a threat we'll just kill them now because fine it solves a problem that may never exist and mm -hmm. the debate that harrow and stephen have about that is quite high level but quite interesting that I think about killing my boss every day, but I'm not actually going to do it. And what about baby Hitler and all that? Well, they don't say baby Hitler, but what about baby? Yeah, the baby Hitler. Should you kill baby Hitler? Well, no, because it's still a baby. What will that do? What will that prevent? What changes will that bring in? That was all an interesting stuff. And then seeing his community that works, actually works in terms of these people are all really good and they all support each other and people can leave their doors unlocked and all that stuff almost the power fantasy that an idealized society should have that everyone trusts each other but also we have machine guns for some mm. reason just in case as a good cult leader does yes yeah we live this perfect pacifistic life but we all carry machine guns for when we're not living it all that was really interesting the glass in the shoes thing which i'm told is a common thing in cults with cult leaders just doing things like that i can't really speak to it. it was someone else that told me that but i thought he was a really compelling villain and he's good for a tv show because he is more of an intellectual threat rather than a yeah. physical threat which made it more disappointing when he had to become the physical threat in the final episode. Yeah. Well, do you know, I'm actually regretting in my agenda here of separating the villain and the finale, because I don't think we can, because of what we're saying here. So I'm going to steal the finale and bring it forwards to the villain conversation and merge them as one, because you've just hit on something that I was saving for that, but is actually so important. The idea of a slightly disappointing finale... I think what I would have preferred myself, based on everything you've just said, is the gods having the big dust-up and fighting physically. And I would have preferred the intellectual conversation between Arthur Harrow and, well, Stephen and Mark. Because I would have quite liked it if it had come to the final point where Moon Knight wins, but Harrow is then still able to talk. And he just has a debate. Because I actually would have liked to have seen more of the stuff that you've just talked about, the philosophy of it, 
throughout. I would have maybe dropped a few extra things such that whenever they met, they had more of that Stephen versus Arthur at the start, where they're having that chat. Oh, you not like it with the way it's going here. I'll tell you about Conchure. He's awful. That was the open door. So every time they then meet, he keeps bringing up more stuff. Now, they do do a little with it. They have him chipping away at Layla as well. Yeah. And that's fine, but again, it happens once, and it's, I will niggle at your father, and it's a family thing, and that's going to upset you. Well, yeah, but it's a bit of an easy shot to take at somebody. The way that happens, though, is really interesting, because he doesn't say directly, what if Mark killed your father? He gives her enough information for her to put that together herself. Sure. And lets her make up her own mind on it. That's a common cult leader thing as well, I think, to make you think you came up with the solution yourself, where it's you're playing into their hands. So it sends Layla off with this idea in her head that she's gotten through the information he supplied, the carefully chosen information, and then she goes and confronts Mark about it because she's never thought about it before. That was another really good thing that he did. Oh, yeah. I would argue then that that is something that I also wanted to see more of this whole idea of him being this cult leader as a villain i'm actually going to pose potentially wonder is the best mcu villain i'm not sure yet doctor strange 2 being so awful for me made me hard to do that but i'm still partially there but i would argue that arthur harry is one of the better villains we've seen because his origin is somebody who was abused and thought he was doing good and then it was taken off him or he gave it away because he realized he wasn't doing good and then he tries to do it himself but he's so twisted and he arguably does do some good as you say with the cult leader set up but you don't get to see him being the best villain because you don't see enough of it so i think you're right what you've just said with layla absolutely great would have liked to see more of it what i saw with mark and stephen great would have loved to have seen more of it and i definitely wanted the final i wanted to see some things that they could if they'd wanted their metaphor they could have done it they could have done as stephen wins the fight because it should have been stephen i think because he was the one that talked more about emotions and learned more intellectually so stephen battles with arthur and they start out with arthur has completely brought Moon Knight low. Yeah, you're about to kill me, but I give you this one bit of word and you pause and think, oh, God, everything you're saying now seems right. But then Stephen slowly argues it back. And they could have done the metaphor with Amit is beating Konshu whilst Stephen is losing the argument, but then Konshu wins the fight in direct proportion to Stephen winning mm. the argument. Because it's all about belief. They're constantly pointing out that the gods get their power from the mortals. So in that case, why not? My God fights as well as I, the mortal, give him the ability to do so. And you can still have a Godzilla fight in the background, and you can still have exactly the way it played out, because it did go that way. It looked like Amit was winning, pushing Konshu down against the pyramid, and then he, he wins. So they sort of did do it, but it was a physical representation of the Battle of the Avatars, not a philosophical one and it does seem like such a shame to miss that point i guess maybe marvel didn't want a philosophical battle they wanted it to be a fight but then they do give you the bit at the end where he says kill him and stephen or mark or both of them arguably say no we're not going to be as bad as you so then suddenly this philosophical battle does come back in and it comes back in after this pointless blackout where you're thinking oh, no wait a minute you were going to give me an action ending and then you didn't <laughs> Yeah. Okay, so now you're not giving me a philosophical battle and you're not giving me the action sequence. 
So I'm a bit confused now, actually. I mean, we did get to see a bit with Layla and Mark as a street fight. It was good. But yeah, I think they completely missed the trick with the villains. They didn't use Arthur well enough. I thought he was great. Didn't use him well enough. And the gods were arguably still villains, but I wanted the humans more on centre stage. Yeah, and Mark deciding not to kill Haru made sense because it was one of the first choices he ever made purely for himself. Yeah. He decided to spare his life because of his own reasons, not because he's been told to do it or coerced into doing it. So that was an important decision for him to make, for sure. And then the Amit Konshu fight, yeah, it's fine in the sense that it's two giant beings knocking lumps out of each other, but the debate they were having was just really surface level. It's, I believe in punishment before the crime. I believe in punishment after it, punch, punch. And they don't go into the detail of it. And it's really disappointing in that way because it just is. And Amit as well, they had something interesting there because she exists a contradiction. Harrow and all of his followers devoted themselves to her way of thinking, her yeah. teachings, her mission statement, fully committed to it. Harrow was willing to lose his life as a result of what he had to do to put this in place. He knew that he mm. would have to be judged so that other people can't be because he had to wait through the money. Mu- yeah, so he was fully prepared to be judged as a necessary part of that. And then Amit says... No, I'll take you as my avatar because I still need you. So at that point, Harrow should have been turned around going, I did it again. I yes. backed the wrong horse. How have I done this twice? Yes. Well, all the gods are wrong. Yes. <laughs> yeah. So it's turning around to Mark or Stephen. And I think it's more important for Mark because Mark is the one that needs to reject Konshu. Because yes. Stephen already does. He does, yeah. Stephen already understands that Konshu is full of it. So Mark needs to understand that. And at that point, Harrow should turn around to him and say, I've just learned that Amit is just full of it. And Mm. I am completely wrong. I'm not wrong in what I believe. I still believe in that. But I am wrong in backing her because she doesn't believe in that, clearly. She's willing to pick and choose what her stance is on various things. So let's team up and get rid of these bizarre god creatures that are just manipulating us. That could have been a thing, actually. Yeah, that would have been a good ending, too. Because then, effectively, he's doing what Alexander did and said, no, I realise that you're wrong and I'm going to help. I think I would take that slightly further as well, though. Although you've already said it, so I'm only echoing what you've already said. I would have made more of a connection between the judgment of Konshu in episode three or four, I can't remember now myself, and the final scene, where I wanted to see the philosophical debate which puts Konshu away. Yeah. And then it'd be reversed at the end where people have to have the humans change their minds. Because for reasons that we're going to come to, hopefully in the final phase of the moon, the gods being a bit useless, and I'm okay with that, the idea then that humans are the ones doing the real arguments. Well, it's potent, first of all, because it means we do hold our own destiny in our hands, but equally it fits with the ideas of their universe. The whole thing seemed like it would slot perfectly into what they're doing, but again, yeah, they didn't commit to it. I don't know if that was a writing choice now or if it was just a missed opportunity. Yeah, it's making the pizza, isn't it? We just have to have our action finale. Well, maybe it is. Maybe the same thing we've railed about on all of these shows where it's not the MCU plot that came back in and blasted it this time. It was just the theme of the MCU that came back in and blasted it. So it's still the same thing to blame, just in a slightly different way. But we seem to be on the same page there that Arthur was great. The gods were set up very well. I mean, we liked Konshu at the start. But the use of both of them wasn't good enough. I still think Arthur himself is potentially one of the best villains we've had. 
but I would say just like Wander, not well used. Harrow doesn't have to abandon his belief system to reject Amit. In fact, it's yeah. strengthens his belief system that he rejects Amit. It's, I believe in this stuff, she doesn't. So I don't want anything to do with her. That's a really interesting choice to break away from that. And then he's devoted so much of his life to accomplishing this thing under false pretenses. That's fascinating stuff. And he could come back and be a villain still afterwards. Yeah. He would have to change what he was doing. He might have to be more of a Lex Luthor style with no power, but lots of influence. Yeah. Well, he comes back deliberately making sure he has nothing to do with any gods because he didn't trust them at that point. He made the mistake of trusting two, once bitten, twice shy type scenario. We've done pretty good slot at the finale then, but I guess I'll just... Uh, so is there anything else about the finale that you do want to bring up before I do the final phase of the movie? The lack of an ending for Layla really stood out to me because mm-hmm. of how prominent she was up to that point. And then they do the big hand-holding thing to put Amit back in the jar. And then she disappears. Yeah. She doesn't have any finality to her. And again, part of the problem with the finale as a episode, I suppose, is the lack of focus on the characters because Layla had a really strong connection to both Mark and Stephen throughout the show. And I really liked how her relationship with Stephen developed, how they had more in common. They were better suited, didn't it? One of the lingering questions is, how did her and Mark get together in the first place? They seem to have absolutely nothing in common. She doesn't really like him. She doesn't know him all that well. He may have had something to do with her father's death, which didn't occur to her until a few hours ago, probably in the context of the timeline of the show. But I guess it's one of those questions. You do see a lot of mismatched couples in real life. How did it take so long for them to split up is a question that will come up in your own life, I would imagine, relating to different people. But you don't really get a sense of, okay, how did they ever get to the point where they got married? But when they are breaking it down, their relationship in that third episode, I think it's that third episode, that was the most interesting stuff in that episode where it's, okay, you can see that glimmer of familiarity, that glimmer of connection there. I understand that there was one and then the fact that she likes Stephen better. And then when Stephen kisses her and Mark takes control of the hand and mm-hmm. slap yes. him and things, that was really nice touch, the stay away from my wife sort of thing and Mark disappearing to protect her, all that stuff. But there was a need for her to have final moments with both of them, I think. And have some kind of closure on one or both of those relationships. She kind of has one with Mark, but it's not good enough. No, it is a shame, actually, because they didn't need to give her an ending that detracted from Moon Knight. Although it is a bit of a shame if all she is is part of Moon Knight. But if they want to keep the focus on him, then there is a relationship there. And she is a willing partner in it. And she was fully involved at the end point. So they've both learned something. They've both defeated the enemy. It, It does seem like she's earned her place they did spend all their time though making sure that you knew what was going on with jake the renegotiation with Konshu, the fact that two fish are trapped in the tank now instead of one is their big focus and you start to think again i wonder if they shot a decent ending for layla and just cut it because they ran out of time again is it another one of those things whereby if we'd have had another episode and we could have spaced things out a bit rather than just having an epilogue for mark and stephen because we definitely got an epilogue for them in the asylum and everything would we have gotten an epilogue for who is also now a central character our scarlet scarab i don't know maybe yeah because all that stuff around her father's death was really interesting and mark's perspective on it and it really liked how that led to him being coerced to be possessed by Konshu. Mm-hmm. And the fact that Stephen's looking over his shoulder in that memory, he's the moral compass throughout that whole memory trip side yeah. of things. And he looks at it and goes, you do see what's going on here, right? Yeah. He's manipulating you. This is practically textbook. 
you didn't pick up on this? Well, I was near death at the time, so had a lot in my mind, that kind of stuff. I would have liked to have seen more along the commitment to the gods being useless as well, yeah. actually, because at the end of it, in that whole philosophical argument, I would have quite liked it if Layla had been there for it, because she could be. She could have said, oh, wait, hang on a minute. Have I just been manipulated by my god as well? Because I'm an avatar. And what they do present with Tarouette is someone who is lovely, charming hippo person, who's lovely and charming and cuddly. And you're thinking, oh, no, actually, I kind of preferred all the gods to be a bit horrible. So if there is a nice god out there, you've undermined that a bit. Could be a facade as well, though. Well, it could be. And I think that's what it should have been. It should have been. Tarouette is not very nice. She was doing everything she could to trick Layla into doing it. Not that Layla wouldn't have done it, but that's just who the gods are. I don't believe that the humans are going to do the right thing. We have to try to possess them a little bit. And at the end of it, I would have liked Layla to have had an opportunity to reject her avatar status. Now, I don't want to take the superhero away from her, so it would be better if, as Mark and Stephen have, a reason to still be with Moon Knight. There's Jake. They didn't get to choose, but that follows the abuse theme. We're not giving you consent here. <laughs> Jake's happy with this. He loves it. And then they have to battle Jake. So it would have been good as well if Layla have had a reason. I am arguing that my god is just as awful but I need to keep her as my god and stay the Avatar because reasons. And then they would give you, because they've had this philosophical debate, they would give you her reasons. And I'm sure they could come up with something just as good. I need to make a personal self-sacrifice. I am doing what you've done as well. I'm going to accept Harrowette and everything that comes with her because of all the good I can do. Even that alone, I can do good here. I believe I can manipulate this god back and do it better. Make that mistake. There's something insidious about that as well. It's that convincing someone they need you when they don't. So what you've got is you've got Layla convinced that she needs to sacrifice her own agency, I suppose, in order to be a superhero because she can do a lot more as a superhero than she can as not being a superhero. Fair enough. It's classic grooming, isn't it? That's what people do. Well, it's another form of abuse, exactly. Like the gods have been advertised. They are all a villain. And that would have made sure that we knew that all the gods were actually a bit nasty. So, yeah, definitely. It would have been that form of abuse. But also with more time, you could have had more time for... Layla to sit with Tauret and discuss what this means for her mm. and how that relationship's going to work. Because the implication is that it's based on cooperation rather than manipulation as yeah. it is with Mark and so on. So again, we needed more context for why is this different and why is this better? At the very least, they could have had Tarouette manage to persuade Konshu to be a bit nicer. And he agrees. And he actually says, do you know what, Mark and Stephen? Yeah, let's have a nice relationship. Oh, by the way, I've actually tricked you. I'm not nice after all. I've kept on Jake. And they would have betrayed Tarouette. And you get the extra level of betrayal in. So they could have even gone down that route. Ultimately, then, we've suffered with the problem of, I think, bringing in the philosophy of two gods who are arguing over the very nature of right and wrong, and they're not done anything with it, is our big problem with this. So I really like Moon Knight the character and Scarlet Scarab. I really liked Layla, the character, but the weakness of the show is not committing maybe to a non-MCU thing, but were they even allowed to do that? It'd be interesting to know if they could. 
but maybe they were told at the start, you've got all these talking scenes. Can you not replace it with a fight? Yeah. <laughs> I do have one phase of the moon left, though, which is really the time running out under the waning moon, just making sure we're not missing anything in our final minutes. We've covered the finale, but there's the future really is the final point that I didn't want to miss and I did actually and this is a reminder why I put the finale in here because I wanted to connect with the gods being useless to what's coming I do believe that even though the MCU is not overtly in this and it's better for it setting up the gods as being somebody that you might want to get rid of is the perfect setup for Gore the God Butcher in Thor 4 and you don't need to see this in order to understand Gore was right, even though I can totally see that meme coming. <laughs> I think it does lead into it. They do slightly do it. They talk about, oh, where are those other two missing members of the Ennead? Where have they gone? Oh, we'll talk about that later. So you know that Thor 4 has already occurred by this point, but we haven't seen that film yet. So for us, it is set up. Although I suppose it takes quite a long time to go around the multiverse and kill gods. So we could believe it's an ongoing challenge. So I would say I don't think I saw a lot of MCU in it, but I did see that. Would you have liked to have seen more, or do you think, no, that's fine, I prefer it that small? I was pretty happy with the lack of MCU connections. Not that I'm in the camp of people that say this interconnectedness is killing the individual films, because I don't think it is. I think, yeah. by and large, the MCU is very good at, this is just a reference, you don't need to... Be aware of it to enjoy what's in front of you. The things are self-contained. The only reference to the rest of the MCU I've really picked up on was the mention of the ancestral plane from Black Panther. Oh yeah, that was something Towerette mentions yeah. as being a possibility. And then there's the suggestion that whatever your belief system is, that's the afterlife you get, which is a good democratic way of doing it when you're doing a mass market thing, I suppose. If you're a Christian, you're in Christian heaven. If yeah. you follow the Egyptian beliefs, then you'll end up in Egyptian heaven and so on. What's the wheat field that Mark ends up in? Field of reeds. Yeah, which looks really boring as a afterlife. It's calming though. I did feel calm there, I have to admit. Yeah, but after you're there for an hour or so, it's like, I wish I'd brought a book to read. <laughs> oh, but that's the whole point of the afterlife from these ancient worlds. I think it's the same as Elysium from the Greek afterlife. They forgot. They didn't have a long-term memory anymore, so they just hung out in this place. <laughs> and you don't want that book because you've got the memory of a goldfish. You just say, oh, that's a nice read, wander off. Well, that's a nice read, wander off. So actually, you're perfectly happy. Yeah, fair. Yeah, so there's that. That pretty good. And you've mentioned a few times now about the gods being useless. That reminds me of the conversation we had about Eternals, which is something we heavily theorised about. Mm. That film is about confronting God, so to speak. Yeah. Although it's more in a metaphoric sense, as in these beings might as well be gods. So you've got the Celestials who are, well, they're gods because they created well, yeah. planets and life and whatever else. So by that definition, they are a god. And that's what Eternals is kind of about. So I found myself drawing that connection because they make a point of referencing the non-interference directive yeah. that the Egyptian gods have because the Eternals had it too, although they used it as an answer to why didn't you help fight Thanos? Whereas here it's, we just believe that humans should get on with it themselves where Conscious says, I think they need a bit of help. Yeah. And there's your conflict. And yeah. it's just an excuse for the rest of the gods to sit and do bugger all really, isn't it? We have avatars, but we don't do much with them. 
We're just in control of these people sometimes. Well, I don't like the idea that actually they're only into humans effectively as a food source. We need your worship in order to be powerful. Once we're powerful, screw you guys, I've got stuff to do. And it's only people like Konshu and Amit that think, nah, what I've got to do directly involves you. But for the rest of them, it could be happily making joined up star pictures in some faraway galaxy. And that, yeah, I've got my beliefs, that's all I want. So not only are they a bit useless, but quite a lot of them are just selfish creatures on another plane. That's the plot in Clash of the Titans, isn't it? The gods are losing the worship of people, so they have to do something about it. They just want it back. But it gives them power, it gives them strength, and they start dying without it, so they have to find a way to scare them into worshipping them again. That is the Greek gods. The Greeks worshipped a bunch of gods who just messed with them for their own purposes. Why is the god doing it? It's a god. Why do they make an earthquake? What do you expect? It's a god. You didn't expect them to be nice, did you? They're a bit horrible in their at least ignorance of us or uncaringness of us. It does bring up a problem, though, that I do say I will never resolve because it can't be resolved. And I wonder if the MCU is going to try to. When I watch these things, I want to know what the full connection, power level, gradation, interactive relationships are. If you've got lesser gods and greater gods, and you've got this type of god, and you've got Thor as a type of god, and you've got Bast as a type of god and Khonshu, I need to know how it all relates. Don't just tell me that, oh, you will go off to your own nice little plane. Yeah, that's great, but can every god create a plane? Is it just some of them? What's the difference between Thor and Khonshu? Why can people see this god and not that god? Odin had a special power, but Thor didn't. So does that mean they're all of the tame type of being? Or did Odin steal the god powers and Thor's just a different alien race, but he got called a god? I need to know this stuff. And I don't think it's possible. Well, doesn't Thor pretty heavily establish that, that Asgardians are just regarded as gods because they arrived on Earth when humans had no idea of any different. They're just aliens that have powers of some sort. And certainly the first two Thor films, they go out of their way to explain how these things work in science. Mjolnir was forged in the heart of a dying star, etc. They do have enchantments and things, and then Doctor Strange brought in the whole magic thing, although they were a bit cagey about using the term magic in a way. It was, we draw our powers from this, and we call these programs spells. It's just a slightly different terminology for something that you can understand. And now with this, it's yeah, we're ethereal beings, we're gods, we can possess people. And it's the any sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic type argument almost, but they don't really explain what these gods are in context where, yeah, with yeah. Thor and even the Eternals, they explain what they are because it's established in the film that they form the roots of some of our myths, which yeah. makes me wonder what they're going to do with Athena slash Athena when they deal with Olympus in... Thor 4. This is what bothers me. I need to know. I saw an explanation video online that they'd help me with this, but I can only assume it's a suggestion rather than the definite truth because the guy said that Athena is somebody who was mistaken for Athena and the real Athena was like, oh, yeah, fair enough, whatever, I'm off. I've got my own selfish things to do. So if you want to pose as me, it probably gets me more worshippers. Knock yourself out. And I'm fine with that, actually. That does make sense to me but then you do wonder if the Eternals all pretty much just had random names so one of you got to be a god the other one got to be the guy who flies too close to the sun now I do understand that when people were writing comics back in the day they picked the name from legend that suited what the character arc was going to have 
that's great. That makes sense for your internally consistent story. But the MCU is now going to try and be internally consistent across all of your stories. So in that case, one of them pretended to be a god and the other one was just mistaken from some poor fool that thought he could fly too high. And that's a bit unfair. But also, why did you do that? (laughs) Why didn't you all want to become gods? And Thor... When Gore turns up and tries to kill Thor, is Thor going to be able to say, oh, no, 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 don't kill me? We just pretended to be gods. They just thought we were. We're not. Maybe Gore would say, do you know what? Good enough for me. Still going down because you could have helped them and you didn't. I'm okay with There are theories out there, but if they don't answer it, I'm very frustrated, I think. Although that's totally my own darkness. They don't need to, but I think it stemmed from Loki. I need to know what's a timeline and what's a different dimension and what's a different plane? How does that work? Because dimension and timeline seem to be the same thing, but I bet they're not. Yeah, so in this, you definitely have different planes of existence, the afterlife and yeah. so on. Asgard's just really far away, and they travel through a wormhole. Right. That's what they did in the first Thor movie, the Einstein-Rosen bridge, as Jane Foster called it. And yeah. Thor calls it a rainbow bridge, because that's what they call yes. it on Asgard, and fine. Because he's an advanced, super-intelligent scientific race, so of course they'd lose a pretty flowery term. Yeah. He's also not one of the smarter members of that I race. Suppose, yeah, he's, yeah, he's not yeah. a scientist. I'm just going to take the the Bifrost rainbow bridge, a big whatever. shiny thing. Go for it. We call it something. We have a name for it, and that name has been steeped in mythology, and primitive humans saw these beings and thought, they are gods. Even though with Thor and so on, the timeline doesn't really match because Thor was a child when the Norse mythology was kicking in, as the first film establishes, which is something that always annoyed me. So you see, you're bringing all this stuff up and you're not giving me confidence because I need it to add up mathematically. Well, it already doesn't add up, so... (laughs) And I know someone's just going to say to me, it's not going to, forget about it. And I went, no, I want it to! (laughs) Yeah, so there's issues there. Thor and Loki aren't even brothers in the normal Norse mythology they are in the comics but again that's a whole other debate that could be had at some different time Mm. but to me there is definitely a distinction the Asgardians and presumably the Olympians as you see in Thor Love and Thunder trailer are aliens from a faraway place in the universe because Olympus looks a lot like Asgard did in the first film based on that trailer so that part's fine they're just really old aliens. Even Odin tries to dispel the we're not gods thing in the second film where he says, we're born, we live, we die. And Loki says, give or take a few thousand years. So from his perspective, that makes him better than everyone else because he lives longer and he deserves to be worshipped as far as he's concerned. But here it is, they're beings from other planes of existence. There's an afterlife. Humans get to go to it when they die, because souls exist, I suppose. So what does that mean, then? Where did this afterlife come from? What's the Asgardians' afterlife? Valhalla, I guess, because they talk about it in those films. Yeah, but who's up in their Valhalla? Because Valhalla is still this place of mythical battles. So there would have been people that fought the battles. So was Odin named after some original Odin? that created Valhalla? Right, you're Odin now. Oh, you'll be Thor. And all they do is recycle all these names, and there was an original one. Because surely they have their own heroes from their own... Anyway, there's no answer here. They will do, yeah. The problem is they don't do a deep dive into Asgardian culture in any of these films, do they? (laughs) No. It's just this high-level approach you get to the way that they build that world. So, yeah, you would imagine that the Asgardians have an afterlife because you see his mother's funeral in the second film. Yeah. So there's clearly a ritual aspect to the way that they handle death 
So they're sending her to Valhalla in a way. And according to this, different afterlifes exist. So the Asgardians, they go where they believe they go, which is Valhalla, I guess. Yeah, I need to leave this alone. (laughs) I just need to walk away. It'd be interesting, yeah, you you bring out these tears of the afterlife as we go on. We'll see Valhalla at some point, maybe. I don't know. We need to do a classification podcast, and I'm totally up for that. I won't <laughs> understand a word of it, but I'm, I'd be up for trying. Yeah, no, it's an interesting point, I think, because there was definitely a reluctance to fully commit to Thor as a magical being yeah. early on, because maybe we don't trust the audience to follow it. We don't trust that Thor, the magical being, will be accepted as someone that can interact with Iron Man, the guy in a tech suit. So he has to just be an alien who can fly and has a hammer. Fine. That's as far as we're willing to take it for now. We'll dip our toe in the water there. And then as we go on, because it did go on, they expand on it by adding different things. And now we're at the point where we have different planes of existence. And maybe Thor Love and Thunder will show characters going to their afterlife, especially if Gore the God Butcher is going around butchering gods. Well, yes. He's sending a lot of people that way. I just know from a certain writing perspective that if you try and write it afterwards, you always get in trouble. That's my fear. And you always have to retcon stuff. And they've already retconned a couple of things and people are thinking, well, not totally retconned, but said, oh, it was actually Peter Parker in the Iron Man mask. Okay, hang on a minute. Can we talk timelines here? As soon as you try and do it in reverse, you end up in trouble. If your audience is loving it so much, they don't question it, fine. but there's so much out there now. I think my brain is always going to ask questions. Well, what are we banging up against next? Mutants have always existed in this world, even though we've never seen one. Exactly. You know it's coming. Let's talk about the future, though. Things you bring up the future. The future of Moon Knight, no one is officially signed up. No one no. is actually going to do this. But Ethan Hawke and May Kalamari have said, we're interested. And Oster Isaac has given the classic if you give me a good enough script. But actually got a more positive thing from Mohamed Diab. He really wanted to do another one, a second series or a film, because he wanted to shoot it in Egypt. Yeah. So there's positive stuff there. The other possibility that everybody's talking about is crossovers. You won't get your own thing anymore. You'll not get a film. You'll not get a second series. But you'll be in with Blade, and you'll be in with all the other magic and supernatural people. So do you hope for one other or even both of those, or not bothered? I'll take what I can get at this point. It'd be a shame if this is the last time we ever see Moon Knight. Yeah. Because they've gone to the trouble of building the setup and mythology surrounding him. So the fact that it just, oh yeah, where is he? I don't know. He's nowhere. <laughs> it does leave on a cliffhanger in a way because you have the Jake introduction. So that's left as a big question mark to play with. Does that mean we'll just get Jake the next time that Moon Knight appears, if he appears at all? Of course, you could get Moon Knight appearing without an actor. As such, that would suck, but you could do it. Yeah. You just have the suit and then a voice. doesn't have to be Oscar Isaac's voice, does it? It would be a shame if they did that. I think it would be really distracting. You've got all these people standing around having a chat and he's just there in his mask all the time. Yeah. Which would stand out in the MCU because whenever people are having a chat, they never wear their masks, really. <laughs> they're always taking them off. They've even built it into most of the costumes now where they automatically retract when they were going to have a chat. Yes. So yeah. it would really stand out if they did that. So, yeah, I'll take what I can get, I suppose. I don't think this will be the last time we see him. There's got to be a price that Oscar Isaac will accept. He's a busy guy. He's got a lot of projects on the go. He's lapping up the work while he's young and sought after. So fair play to him. And does he want to be stuck in the Marvel machine for the rest of his career? Probably not. Not that that's a slight on anything. It's just there are other projects I can do. 
And I would oh, yeah. keep doing this, so fine. But they are definitely starting to set up this, you know, the magical team. It's almost the Marvel Knights banner, I guess, which is a comics run where it's just, this is all the darker side of it. You've got your Werewolf by Night coming, you've got Blade, you've got Black Knight, who's already been alluded to. These kind of off-centre, magical, perhaps a bit nasty things mm. that can interact. So we'll, we'll see him again. you probably get Layla back, I would oh, imagine. Yeah. I don't know what the actress is up to, but she's not really been in anything before this. No, she could do a crossover with anybody. And because she's been just created as a superhero, they could actually bring Tarouette with her and the two of them get to form a relationship completely from the scratch. Because they didn't even give her an epilogue here. They can form a new relationship in a new film as a crossover or anything with anybody. So that feels like it's an easy win She'll turn up somewhere. Like they're doing with Echo, just give her her own show. I could do that. That's a freebie. It feels like it can go anywhere. I think I would rather see Moon Knight in his own film or series, though, because it is such a character study. I wouldn't want to see him in a team-up where it's just going to be, what problem can you solve? And it's got some naff, oh, I'm afraid of this and I learned to not be afraid of it. Pretend character development that... People might know what film I'm talking about just here, but <laughs> come back to that later. But it doesn't have this pretend character development. It feels like he needs a lot more screen time to really get into the character choices. And because there's now four of him, he physically needs a lot more screen time to show all four people, unless you just have one argument and get it over and done with. But that would be a waste. I suppose he could be a villain in something just as Jake. Oh, maybe, yeah. But again, that would be a shame because I've already missed out on this philosophy and debate and character study if he just turns up to be shown on camera. Oh, yeah. I just acknowledge it's a possibility rather than something I would like. Yeah, I wouldn't turn it away. I'm not going to say it's a shame. If I got that as well, I would not turn it down. But I, I would rather see more of him doing his character study than be completely replaced with just turn up as an extra body now. I'm not hopeful I'm going to get it because it feels like it's going to be difficult, but it would be really nice. And that's the one I want because I'd happily see some of this darker stuff, these darker team ups, because that's the sort of thing I've always said I wanted, but wouldn't be enough for me. Yeah. Well, the problem with the Jake post credit scene is... You have Khonshu just sitting there expositing in a way that's just really clumsy. Mm. You can get most of this through context, or you could get it through the way Harrow says. You don't need Khonshu sitting at the back of a limousine in a (laughs) suit saying, I liked Mark because he was even more broken than even he knew, and meet Mm. Jake. You could get all that in a much more subtle way without doing that, because otherwise they set up that moment really well actually not showing his face and we all knew what was happening there i suppose but at the same time they built the suspense to that moment because you already know that conchu would be interested in mark because of how broken he is and now suddenly you're confirming he's more broken than he thought and all it takes is jake turning around speaking spanish maybe saying hi i'm jake or whatever before he shoots him yes so you have that and it's a pretty unceremonious way to get rid of harrow as well a character that had a lot of potential. We did already see Mark and Stephen come back from the dead, so it's not necessarily a deal-breaker, but at the same time, it's a bit of a clumsy scene in that way. It is, because you actually got enough of it by seeing there are now two fish trapped in the bowl. That alone is enough to tell you what you need to know. Yeah, It is a bit of an Easter egg. You have to put two and two together, but as you say, the series has already given you enough 
to put two and two together, in this case, one and one. So it would have been fine. But yeah, I would have happily have seen just a little moment where some guy turns around and says something in Spanish. Yeah, definitely. Oh, that's the third guy. Cool. You need to know his name is Jake at this point. No, you don't, actually. No, they really ham that. It's strange, really, to do so much with symbolism, and then at the end, they really hammer it home. But I don't know. Maybe somebody else wrote that one part. Maybe that's the MCU crashing in. Some other writer comes in and says, right, I need this for my next film. Right, you're doing it. I am glad that they didn't crowbar that into the finale, though, because they'd hinted at it up until that point, and I was okay with them hinting at it, but then I was thinking, we have one episode left. We haven't even touched on this third personality yet. So I was actually expecting the... Hi, I'm Jake, and I'm here to help you fight, or I'm here to do this. I don't know. I don't know what they could have done with Jake in that last episode, and I'm, that's why I'm glad they didn't do it. But I was expecting it to be a thing, and it ends up being a cheat to, as you said earlier, get out of a tense situation. Yeah. Blackout, problem solved. Well, I didn't do this. Did you do this? No. Okay, moving on. Yeah. We're not going to dwell on it. And the fact that they don't dwell on it as well is a bit weird. They're never bothered by the fact that part of their brain isn't accessible yeah. to them. Yeah. So in that epilogue that they both have, where it's like, okay, we're now going to timeshare this body, we'll have our lives, and is this how you live? And isn't there a third guy we should be worrying about? What's his deal? <laughs> <laughs> how many guys are there in this brain of ours? Well, that would be your worry, absolutely. Yeah, if there's three, there could be four, there could be five. They've done that in the comics, and I know that much. When people start running out of ideas, they concoct a different personality. Yeah, I've been hidden for all this time. It can be a bit weak, but yes. Yeah. Right, is there anything else that you think I've missed for this waning moon? Anything else at all from anywhere? No, but one thing that might be worth bringing up just is something that I remembered more than anything else is remember when they were doing the netflix marvel shows moon knight was one of the planned ones before the plans really really changed yeah i was on the we made this podcast networks episode about the finale talking to someone that knows a lot more about moon knight than i do and their suggestion was that it would essentially be mr knight and it'd be more of a detective thing because that's the way the netflix show would have been structured and maybe in the finale you would have got the traditional moon knight suit or whatever but that's probably the direction they would have went down but yeah i do remember them mentioning here's our list of characters that we're planning to get round to and it was daredevil jessica jones iron fist and luke cage and once they got those four out of the way it's like okay now we've got the punisher we want to do all these ones and moon knight was one of them so that was the direction of travel there and you can imagine what that show would have been I already said the potential detective thing but you would have probably got that far darker angle that you were wanting yeah, out of maybe. their approach because they didn't worry about making it audience friendly in that way oh, yeah. or making it mass audience friendly in that way so something worth thinking about what could have yeah. been well yeah i won't disappoint myself with something i could have had <laughs> but yes it's certainly interesting that, that could have been a thing cool nice addition but as the moon turns its phases, I will bring us back to our next new moon and close before we get there. So, could you for me summarize your thoughts here, top takeaways and summary of what you thought of Moon Knight to finish us off with? I really liked the show. thought Oscar Isaac was great. I thought Layla was a great new character that I want to see more of. I think it was a bit rushed in the way that it presented everything, as in, like I said, giving us all the flavours of Moon Knight in one season, where you could have easily had two or three seasons out of different things. And rushing some of the storytelling, like the trial and so on, we could have had way more than we got. And it's a bit of a shame that this could be it for the character because there's a lot of potential there. 
although the breeze through a lot of the potential. So what would your next Moon Knight story be? That will yeah. be the operative question at this point. But I really liked it. I want to see more of it. I do think it was an interesting addition to this ever-expanding universe of stuff and Marvel are still doing it for me after all these years and well, this is yeah. another one that I didn't mind watching. That's not a great accolade. I didn't mind watching it. I was tied to the chair but at least I wasn't bored. Yeah, <laughs> yeah well, it's that thing. Marvel can put their logo on anything and I'll watch it and yes. I've yet to come up against something that I've truly hated from them but I really enjoyed this one. That's because you haven't seen Thor 2. <laughs> no, I was there. Midnight, whatever day it was, and whatever oh, year it I came out. Oh, was such a regretful time, but moving on. <laughs> but I haven't hated any Marvel things, and this definitely isn't one of the ones that I might have hated. Yeah, I enjoyed it. And I liked the fact that I didn't know what was coming, or had no preconceptions about what was coming. That was a nice personal approach for me. Yeah, I probably ruined it for myself a little bit by watching too many explanation videos beforehand. However, it's still going to rank as my favourite of all of the superheroes, I think. I won't say that it's my favourite show. I will still say Hawkeye was my favourite show, but I will say Moon Knight is my favourite character. And I will stand by the fact that I think, used a bit better, Arthur Harrow was one of the best villains we're going to see in Marvel. It doesn't actually get that slot because it wasn't used well enough, but the promise was there and what we did see was still probably better than quite a few of the villains. Do you include Fisk and Kilgrave and so on in that ranking? Fisk, I would include... What did I think of Fisk? Do I include the Netflix stuff as well with that though? Because I didn't really see him much in Hawkeye. Yeah, well that's what I meant. Are the Netflix shows part of that overall ranking? Because their canon to the MCU status is dubious at this point. Because the Fisk in Hawkeye isn't the same Fisk in Daredevil really. His history is quite different. So I guess it depends. I wasn't originally thinking to include them, I admit, although based on Loki, they are just alternate timelines. So I am going to be invited to include them. Without including them, then... Okay, so in the definitive MCU? Yeah, so far what's actually labelled properly. I'm expecting easily to put Scarlet Witch at the top, even despite Doctor Strange 2. But I don't want to get onto Doctor Strange 2. Let's move away from that. That's a dangerous place. I do like the gods in... Moon Knight as well, though the gods being enemies really worked for me. And the opening the door to the supernatural villains and shows that are going to come and crossovers maybe was well done in this, in the way that all of the good stuff they do here is given the right focus. The mental health condition is just there and it's not ham handedly dealt with. The Egyptian place and characters and the representation is just done in this perfect way, that it's not got this heavy-handed focus. It's just there. I think the effort they put into making a show that deals with our modern sensibilities without telling us they're dealing with our modern sensibilities, this is just an example of something I want to see more of. The best parts of it potentially are related to that then, because I reckon that the finale and the action side of things come from the MCU influence, and therefore we keep the pattern. The MCU influence is the weakest part of this. <laughs> and then what's really good is where they really get to branch out and do their own stuff, which is in the small details, as well as doing the representation and the mental health stuff, but just the little details of showing you those patterns. 
where they even get the Tersh reactor to mimic Tower Wet perfectly. They get Stephen in the box of chocolates, all these little details. The comedy of the cupcake van is always going to be one of the best parts of all of MCU for me. It's just hilarious. So I really love the character, really enjoy the show. Despite its potential flaws, I am going to enjoy watching this a second time. Definitely going to mark that up on my list. Accepting that the action stuff, you're never going to lose that, and you shouldn't lose that because it's fun, but they could weave it into their finales more organically, I think, rather than, right, stop the story, time to beat each other up for a bit, and then we'll go home. They need to work on doing that part. I think Falcon Winter Soldier did it largely quite well because you did have the bit where Sam stopped to say, here's a bit of common sense for all you rich people. Here's what you can accomplish. Then they have the action peppering throughout, but they do need to get better at that and we have no idea what Ms. Marvel is going to be whether that's going to culminate in the sixth episode or whatever the last episode is of a big action set piece finale or She-Hulk which has been confirmed to be nine episodes as of whenever the trailer was released it was supposed to be ten but now it's just nine apparently I don't know why that changed and I didn't know that there were supposed to be ten before it changed but never mind maybe that says a lot about how much attention i was paying as someone who creates an agenda for a news podcast every month perhaps i shouldn't mm-hmm. be admitting to how little attention i've been paying but there's a lot of news out there but anyway is the she hulk show in the ninth episode just going to be her punching someone for half an hour mm-hmm. you know, with banner in the background also punching someone else for half an hour well here's to more of that and to more philosophical debates in the mcu shows going forwards yeah that was our discussion of Moon Knight. So thank you, Craig, for that. Pleasure. Thank you for taking over hosting. It was a interesting experiment that's worth doing. You'll have to say if you want more structures like this and I'll come up with weird and wondrous things for you. There we go. That can be my job. We'll see how it goes in the future. Yeah. Otherwise, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, that was our discussion of Moon Knight. Thanks to YouTubers Samuel Kim Music and DSC for the music you've heard playing us in and out. If you like what you've heard, please subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or in fact, anywhere you get your podcasts and give us a rating if you wouldn't mind. I am going to lead it to my alter host self to say what sort of rating we'd like because I have no interest in getting involved in that, but Craig's personality will happily say... I was trying to think of a midnight way to say it, but I can't, so I'm just going to have to say five. Okay, I'll take that. Thank you, extra personality. If you want to discuss Moon Knight or anything else with us, you can get in touch on Facebook or Twitter under Neil Before Blog, or leave a comment on the website, neilbeforeblog.co.uk. As ever, we hope you'll join us next time on Neil Before Pod, but until then, good morning, good afternoon, good evening, and of course, good night. Or good midnight. Almost did it, but I hate puns, so that's not going to happen. Oh, leave it. You can edit it in if you want, but I'm not saying <laughs> it.